Come on. Let's go to ancient Greece. To the time of Pythagoras, the master egghead of them all. Pythagoras? The father of mathematics and music. Mathematics and music? Ah, you'll find mathematics in the darndest places. Watch. First, we'll need a string. Stretch it good and tight. Plunk it. Now divide in half. Plunk again. You see? It's the same tone, one octave higher. Now divide the next section. And the next. Pythagoras discovered the octave had a ratio of two to one. With simple fractions, he got this. And from this harmony in numbers developed the musical scale of today. As their mathematical discoveries, only members were allowed to attend. They had a secret emblem, the pentagram. It was our old friend Pythagoras who discovered that the pentagram was full of mathematic. The two shorter lines combined exactly equal the third. And this line shows the magic proportions of the famous golden section. The second and third lines exactly equal the fourth. Once again we have the golden section. But this is only the beginning. Hidden within the pentagram is a secret for creating a golden rectangle, which the Greeks admired for its beautiful proportions and magic qualities. The star contains the golden rectangle many times over. You never know what can happen at a conference like that if somebody bails. Well, yeah, I mean, I will be in, I will be in Washington. Oh, oh, that kind of material. I got you. I got you. Okay. Okay, guys, welcome back to the America Show. Uh, a bit of a lost tape uh, edition tonight, but we'll get into that a little bit later. But first, the uh, ghoulish Graham Dunlop. How's it going tonight, buddy? Thanks, man. I'm okay. I'm a little... Uh, I don't know, recovering from the scare, the big scare in Gramerica. I'm recovering from only getting like three hours of sleep for the last week. <laughs> uh, hopefully this doesn't affect our real jobs. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> so yeah, actually this episode, you can, uh, you can thank our buddy George Rohr on Twitter, um, at Sir Rohr, S-I-R-R-O-H-R. If it wasn't for him and the people over at our studio, these episodes would not exist because... Uh, they got deleted one way or another, probably my fault could have been, um, conspiracy though. Possible. Oh, oh you wouldn't entertain that idea before. Now you are on the not air. Facetiously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, but not just this episode, like six, we had six in the can more than any five in the can more than any. And wow. We, yeah. We got, we lost six episodes and we were able to retrieve five of them. And it turns out thanks to the Mixler feed because the other files were too big, so they got uh, broken up into bits that were unsalvageable. But the the temporary 
MP3 that Mixler makes to to broadcast out over the web survived, and we were able to find five of six of the episodes. So we will have to be redo our chat with um, Dr. Martin Blank. Hopefully, he's game, but. Luckily, we were able to retrieve this one, and once again, that is, thank you. These next five episodes are uh, literally brought to you by uh, Sir Roar and uh, the people over at our studio. Yeah, and we'll be probably releasing those, uh, what, how, like, at least uh, two or three a week here till you go away, or? Two a week. Yeah, so we can't uh, do more to catch up? No, I don't think we, I don't think we can put two a week's plenty. These fucks will fall behind if we start doing three a week. Okay. We're going to fall behind on this episode. This episode's a doozy. I think we run about three hours and, and 20 minutes. You might notice a, a bit of a difference in the audio for the next few episodes because they're not uh, our masters, but... Because they're somehow salvaged out of nothingness, out of your garbage can? No, the trash can was empty. They were straight up ripped off of the hard drive. <laughs> I don't and even I know how that can I couldn't happen. even like copy anything onto the computer or anything because if you put new files... So I had to put all the programs on my laptop transfer them onto a USB stick, then run the program off the USB stick. I think we tried scanning with like five different programs. Uh, we found one that found the files, but then when we paid a hundred bucks and fucking, and rescued them, none of them would play. Yeah. We even sent it off to a professional recovery company and they couldn't even repair the files. So in a last ditch effort before we brought it into a hard drive specialist here in Calgary, uh, Sir Roar sent me a, uh, a link to the program, uh, another $89 later, we have five of six interviews. Yeah. So that brings us to what the money bomb that brings us to the money bomb. <laughs> uh, sorry to the people who have, uh, I know, I think I owe out about three or four email addresses right now. Um, we've been going through the website trouble with us being over the limit. I think we talked about that Wayne Darnell over at, uh, Darnell Digital link. I think that's the link. Uh, it'll be in the show notes anyway. It was in the Patty Conklin one for sure. Yeah, yeah, it'll be in the show notes every episode for the next little while. He's kind of come on as our official uh, web guy. So if it wasn't for him, we'd be uh, he's saving us probably fifty or sixty dollars a month with his efforts. And we know it's not easy. So thanks, Wayne. We we appreciate it. And if you guys need web page work, then obviously we're recommending our guy. Um and. Uh... We've got some new subscribers too, so we want to thank a bunch of Yeah, bunch that's of them, that's so. what I was talking about. Those are the email addresses right. I owed. So once we get this website uh, shit worked out, which I expect to be in the next couple of weeks, um, I'll get caught up on making all the email addresses. And uh, if you guys want to uh, head over and hit the button and help us uh, recover our costs from these uh, from these uh, troubled times, even though it was probably user error. Um, <laughs> Yeah, head on over to grimerica.ca slash moneybomb. Check out all the rules over there. All right. I so what, keep... about, what about the money bomb? Is it carrying over from July yes. to August then? Yeah, okay, it's so, carrying over. So it probably be... I think all we got was our subscribers last month. Right. Which is still, I think we're up to enough subscribers. That's about 50 bucks a month, yeah, but uh, we still need more. So we are going to keep this episode pretty sh- or this intro and this outro pretty short and sweet because we did get uh three hours and 20 minutes of audio with randall it's all great too so um uh, you guys are really going to enjoy it we had a blast okay
My own present opinion, based on two years of careful study, is that UFOs are probably extraterrestrial devices engaged in something that might very tentatively be termed surveillance. That was Dr. James McDonald before Congress in 1968. Congress of apes. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. Okay, the next one. These UFOs are planetary, interplanetary devices systematically observing the Earth. Oh, it's very similar to the other one. Either manned or under remote control or both. Information on UFOs, including sighting reports, has been and is still being officially withheld. That's from Colonel Joseph J. Bryan III, founder, founder member of the CIA's Psychological Warfare Staff Advisor to NATO. Mm. North American terrorist organization strikes oh, again. Jesus. I think that's, you really think that one's a flag, eh? All the shit we say on this show, you think that the North American... The big T word is the flag. Oh, terrorist, yeah. terrorist, terrorist, terrorist. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I think we'll keep it to about that. I don't know. Some of our listeners, uh, Randall Carson's kind of an up-and-comer, so some of you guys might not have heard of him before. Uh, if that's the case, prepare to be uh, floored. And watch them. Watch the movies that we link to and stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, a lot of this. blowing my mind. Yeah, a lot of this stuff has a lot of visuals to go with it, so if you're pretty intrigued by this, uh, check out the show notes, and we're going to have all those presentations, which includes all the visuals and everything like that. And... Uh, yeah, this guy's an up-and-comer. You're going to be hearing a lot more about Randall Carlson over the next few years, I think. That's right. And we're hoping he's going to come show us some shit around here, actually. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, next year, so. Yeah, and maybe he'll end up in Paradigm with Graham Hancock since I think, oh, yeah, I think that's they're going right. to be traveling together beforehand. Oh, so. yeah, and of course, we do need to pump the Paradigm Symposium. They have yes. thrown us on their sponsor page, so make Ooh. sure you guys check that out. That's the first weekend of October. Uh, Graham and myself will be there. We're hoping producer Joe is going to make it along as well. Yeah, that's and of course, Red Pill Junkie. Yeah. All kinds of fascinating guests there. Uh, Eric Von Daniken, Graham Hancock. Yeah, we... Richard we, Dolan. We're lined up with Von Daniken already. Uh, hopefully we can grab Graham Hancock. Graham Hancock. Graham Hancock. <laughs> you like that? Yeah. And then uh, maybe Randall as well while we're there, so... Yeah, that'll be great. You should try and hook up with uh, McKenna while we're down there too. Yeah, well, I want to bring. I'm I'm waiting for the Oculus Rift uh, development kit too to be uh, delivered. Oh yeah, motherfucker! I forgot all about that. When's that thing coming? It's, in? I don't know. It hasn't been delivered is, yet. Is it any day now? Uh, I don't know. It hasn't been delivered yet. We haven't got the the shipping information. So when we do get it, I'm hoping to get that game, the gallery, uh, from Denny and Cloudhead Games, get hooked up with uh, and fill his dream and get. Uh, McKenna on there. We'll be flying this time. Yes, we will be. TSA. Here we come. <laughs> Terrorist. America and America. America. All right, guys. Enjoy the chat with uh, Randall Carlson. A uh, big thanks to, to Cameron for helping us set it all up. And uh, enjoy the interview.
right, guys, this afternoon in Grimerica, we are going to be talking with uh, Randall Carlson um, of the Sacred Geometry International. He's got uh, a DVD coming out, and it's uh, just some really mind-blowing stuff. I first actually heard Randall on, on Joe Rogan's podcast, and it was like within, I think I was 10 minutes in, and I was already uh, on the internet looking for his email address to, to try and track him down for our show. Um, but first, how's it going tonight, Graham? Hey, buddy. Just like I mentioned in the chat room, I'm more excited than usual. Um, really, really looking forward to this chat with Randall Carson. Carlson. He's a master builder and architectural designer, teacher, geometrician, geomythologist, geological explorer, and renegade scholar. He's got like four decades of study, research, and exploration into the interface between ancient mysteries and modern science. He's been an active Freemason for 30 years, past master of one of the oldest, largest Masonic Lodges in Georgia. He's been recognized by the National Science Teachers Association for his commitment to science education for young people. And as Darren mentioned, we we heard him on Joe Rogan for like three hours, blew our minds, and he didn't even touch on sacred geometry, really. And that's kind of what we're going to start off talking with him about, I hope. He's got a DVD out, like four hours that him and Cameron Wiltshire put out, and it's called Cosmic Patterns and Cycles of Catastrophe. And uh, I had a little preview last night and this morning, and yeah, crazy, mind blowing stuff. Yeah, yeah, this is uh, this is right up our alley. We've been we've been looking forward to it for a long time, and it's funny. Uh, we were hoping we were, we could have this one go a little bit longer than average, and then uh, Cameron emailed last night saying that uh, that's how you like it as well. So so everything should should work out just perfectly here. Um, so you had mentioned kind of before we, we, we went on air that uh, you, you were a home builder and or a master builder, I think. And uh, I was just kind of right off the bat, I was wondering how it is that, uh, you know, how you came into this. Because I'm kind of, we find ourselves in the same spot, like we're uh, kind of in the same industry. And yet we're doing this on the side, um, trying to go down these rabbit holes and learn as much as we can. Well, that's a good question. Um, it goes back. Uh, really to the early 70s and things that were happening, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s. And I got involved in a, some rather interesting projects, mostly along the lines of Buckminster Fuller's Dome. Oh, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what kind of got me going down this path because I got involved with a group that was building a couple of uh, Buckminster Fuller domes up in the north woods of Minnesota. <laughs> and... I got into that and got really intrigued by the 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 the, um, the geometry, the the fuller geometry that he was using. Um, and one of the domes was kind of a the architecture designed it uh, integrated uh, Fuller's concepts along with concepts of Islamic design. And so it was very interesting. And then the the one of the projects, the one I just mentioned, this this fusion project was featured in a national publication called Shelter which I think came out in 1973, if memory serves me correct. And uh, in that, it was just a compilation of a lot of different things uh, having to do primarily with vernacular architecture and experimental architecture and so on. Our, our dome that we had built was featured in that. But there was a lot of other information, too, about um, design uh, of Islamic architecture and some of the principles they were using. That was my first exposure to the idea of the golden section or so-called divine proportion. And it was also my introduction to the work of Le Corbusier, who incorporated the uh, 
the golden section into his system that he called the modular system, which was based upon uh, derivative golden ratios from the human body. Hmm. So that kind of led me into, you know, being intrigued. I, I'd always enjoyed geometry and I'd always enjoyed math. So that kind of just led me into that, uh, this path of trying to learn more about um, how geometry was used by builders in the past. Cause you know, this is early on in my career. So I'm basically learning the techniques and the methods of, of, of modern building. But uh, I just got intrigued by how things were done throughout history. And I think that's, that's where it would have begun. And then it expanded from there. Cause I had, you know, quite divergent interests. So I was looking at, oh, various spiritual traditions and, things and discovered that there were um, kind of this whole uh, domain of spiritual architecture. Mm. And, and so as I kind of began to look into that, um, look into it to, into greater depth, I discovered that there was similar principles throughout a lot of the, the ancient structures, particularly structures that we would think of as, as sacred. And uh, so I think between like 73 and 78, I actually became a Freemason in 1978. So I guess it's actually been more than 30 years now. I go 35 years mm-hmm. plus. Um, so I guess the the, uh, the intro, the bio was a, li- a little bit dated. But anyways, um, you know, by the time 1978 had rolled around, I had explored, you know, what was available back then. There wasn't a whole lot. It kind of led me into, it definitely led me into to Freemasonry because I began to, look at the uh the design principles of of the gothic cathedrals uh and so i eventually took a trip to europe and toured the cathedrals and other sacred buildings collecting information and and data and it it i would say it just proceeded from there um you know um i now there's so much more available than there was back in the 70s you know this was just a an emerging paradigm back then. Mm. And, um, you know, I accessed as much as I could. I found a couple of, um, a, a, a double set of uh, books called Sacred Geometry. Uh, let's see, it was by uh, George Lesser. It was first earliest uh, uh, finding that I was able to come across of the term sacred geometry. And he wrote it, this book, I think it was in the 1940s. And it was primarily about uh, the geometry used in churches and cathedrals. And so I devoured that, digested it. It was primarily, that's where I learned about the two systems, ad quadratum and ad triangulum, which based on the square is the ad quadratum and, and ad triangulum is based upon the equilateral triangle. And so uh, I began to look into the Kabbalah or Kabbalah and found that there was interesting things about geometry in there um, that actually related to architecture, which was kind of surprising. And I looked into alchemy and hermetic traditions. I looked into uh, Hindu architecture. I looked deeper into Islamic architecture. I did classes with Keith Critchlow, who is probably one of the world's foremost authorities on Islamic art and architecture. (laughs) And, uh, Never did get to meet Buckminster Fuller because he passed away before I really had the resources to connect with him. But uh, Keith Critchlow actually had been a student of his and I think actually wrote some of the introductions to some of his books on synergy um, 
uh, that he wrote. I don't know if you've ever seen that two volume set that he put out uh, uh, again, early seventies. Um, no, it sounds fascinating though. Oh, it is. It's about 800, 900 pages of just the densest material. It's, it's a challenge to get through it. And, you know, Buckminster Fuller liked to invent his own, uh, his own terminology. So you have to kind of get through that. (laughs) But, uh, that's pretty much how it was. You know, then I began to, um, Oh, try to experiment whenever possible um, using principles of geometry that I was learning really in pretty just practical mundane ways discovered that, you know, geometry was a, a, an extremely useful skill to have when you're out there trying to build things. And um, I realized, you know, I went I back, I procured some of these old 19th century books on architecture and carpentry and stuff. And as I was reading them, I realized that, you know what, these guys in the 19th century really had a highly skilled, sophisticated, technical understanding of the principles of math that they were using. I mean, these were just regular carpenters. But, you know, when you're talking about, you know, laying out, um, you know, elliptical arches and, and church cathedrals and a lot of things like that, you get into some fairly sophisticated geometry. Hmm. So I started studying some of that. And whenever possible, begin to apply it on, you know, projects that we were doing and um, found it very useful. But, you know, my studies have just continued on along in that in that vein. Somewhere about the uh, late 70s, I believe, reading into, um, you know, studying ancient manuscripts, ancient uh, uh, texts, rather, um, such as the Vedic texts and studying some of the Mayan codices that I had access to. I realized that, you know, there was... Uh, a numerical basis to so much of this, just like a lot of folks know that there's a numerical um, uh, underlying numerical information in the Bible. Well, there is in in virtually every one of these mystical or spiritual or metaphysical traditions that I began looking into, I found that there was this underlying realm of number and geometry. And what really surprised me was the consistency of it, like the, Mm -hmm. the numbers that I discovered through, you know, reading about early Christianity in the Bible were the same numbers that were coming up in, in, um, you know, in reading the Vedas. Yeah. And then, then I became aware, you know, and I also was, have always been interested in astronomy. And so you, you quickly begin to realize by, by the sixties, the 1960s, it had become well known that Stonehenge had an astronomical basis. Mm. And, and so uh, a lot of research was coming out in the 70s, like the, the work of Alexander Thom with his um, surveys of the megalithic structures throughout the British Isles, where he showed both the geometry and the astronomy. So I got a hold of both of his books and studied them uh, in depth to try to understand the archaeoastronomy that was going on. And it was, you know, the, the appreciation began to, to dawn on me of how they had integrated geometry with astronomy. Mm-hmm. And, and architecture. And that was, uh, you know, there's no specific point where I can say there was this, this, you know, where the, you know, the heavens opened up and it was all revealed to me. It was kind of a, a gradual process of picking up the pieces, connecting the dots. And then I came to realize that, um, that, you know, the astronomical end of it was yielding up numbers. And I quickly discovered that, um, a lot of these numbers were actually derived directly from astronomical cycles. And you're probably familiar with the precession of the equinoxes. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, so that serves kind of as a, as a basis for 
developing these cycles, both the sub-cycles and the mega-cycles that are built upon it. And they are encoded in a lot of the ancient traditions. And those numbers and ratios that you find between these time cycles are exactly the same numbers and ratios that you find encoded in the architecture, uh, the <laughs> sacred architecture, which to me was, that was definitely an aha moment when right. I realized that, that, you know, it, it, which led me to the realization that when you're talking about sacred geometry, most people, if you say geometry, you immediately start thinking of spatial phenomena. You start thinking of, you know, either like two-dimensional uh, patterns, or you start thinking of uh, polygons or polyhedra or, or forms in space. Yeah. But sacred geometry also includes the geometry of time. And then that's where we get into a whole other realm of realizing that in that there is a cyclical nature to time, uh, just as the ancients all over the world believed, and that these cycles are very important as far as understanding the rise and fall of civilizations, you know, evolutionary changes, uh, biological changes. Um, and, and I think that our predecessors on this planet were aware of that on some level and began to try to incorporate knowledge of these cycles into their architecture. So, you know, Stonehenge is, has, was demonstrated, oh, years ago by Gerald Hawkins to be a, and, and uh, Fred Hoyle to be a, uh, an eclipse predictor. And um, most of these structures will show or demonstrate or encode somehow the, the, the cycles of time. And they all seem to be based upon the, the so-called great year, which is just another term for the processional cycle. And this is what, you know, we've all heard about, you know, the, the ages of the world. And we talked about the, the, Tauri, the, the age of Taurus or the age of Aries and the age of Pisces and now the age of Aquarius. Well, there's a lot of folks out there who, who talk about that who don't really understand the technical aspects of it or the astronomy of it. But really all it is is this processional cycle in the vernal equinox transiting through each of the signs of the zodiac, each of the 12 signs of the zodiac, on an average period of about 2,100 years. Now, yeah, isn't it the, like, yeah, it's like 26,000 years, the full procession? The full procession is is generally given in most astronomical texts as about 26,000 years. They'll round it off. If you take the, the measurements of the rate that have been made in the last couple of centuries, I think it comes out to about 25,800 and something years. There is a uh, sort of a sacred number that one finds in the canon of, of ancient numerology that is 25,920. <laughs> and that is really close enough, as far as we know, with precision, what the actual cycle is. Because the rate of, of precession of the equinoxes that we've measured in the last couple of centuries may not be the, uh, the constant rate throughout the entire cycle you right. see so it may speed up a little bit it may s slow down we don't know that the that the, the the axial spin of the earth actually does trace out an exact circle it may be slightly elliptical in which case there would be variations throughout the cycle sometimes speeding up sometimes slowing down but certainly the year the number 25,920 comes close enough for any any conceivable use um and then that's the number that we find uh, integral to the, the ancient ca uh, canon of numerical cosmology. And so like in the Angkor Wat, um, the, the, temple grant, the huge temple complex in Cambodia, the whole thing is laid out according to the, the numerical ratios 
that are derived from that processional cycle. Oh, that's crazy. It is crazy. But yeah. it, it raises questions about, you know, how much our predecessors on this planet really knew. Yeah. I was going to ask you, uh, you've kind of already answered it, but before we got into like all the numbers and at the detail level, which, which we do understand it must be difficult for you on audio because you have such a visual presentation. Um, your movie is, is very, very visual and, and the numbers and the connections just blow you away. So I was going to ask you to summarize all the connections and you kind of already answered most of that, but you found, you know, connections with the platonic solids and the ancient structures and the earth and the moon and uh you know cosmological things and time yes yes it all seems to be integrated into this system and what the origin of the system was is anybody's guess oh. um i mean it seems to be embedded in you know the architecture of the solar system for certain um and it also seems to be embedded you know in the living world in the in the biological realm because we certainly find geometry in living things uh you know it's it's embedded in the in the anatomy, human anatomy in the proportions of the the human anatomy and so <clears throat> i think that again the origin of this system is anybody's guess but i think it goes way way back because what we see is at the very dawning of civilization which now we let's let's call it in round numbers 5000 years ago we see the first rep, uh, representations of of you know human culture in the form of architecture Sacred geometry was an integral part of that. And when I say sacred geometry in that context, I'm also implying the astronomy that goes along with it. And uh, so, and then over the years, it's it's gone through a series of declines and then revivals. Um, and so we see, I think, the last great revival and utilization of some of these concepts was during the high Middle Ages, during the, the period of the guild building of the Gothic cathedrals, which ran roughly from the mid 12th century to the early 14th century for about 150 years. And then there were, um, you know, various shifts, both cultural and social shifts, but also environmental shifts that I think brought the great um, age of Gothic building to, to a close around, oh, between 1310 and 1320. Mm. Um, and that's why I, a lot of the cathedrals, if you visit them, you know, they give you the impression of not having really been finished and a lot of them weren't finished it's almost as if you know a um, a bell rang and everybody put down their tools and left which is kind of one of the mysteries but um i've concluded that it's a number of factors converging all at once one of the one of the things would, would have been the onset of the little ice age which caused a number of agricultural collapses over a period of five or ten years between about 13 uh 10 and 1330 right in that early 14th century period and those agricultural collapses caused famine, which then led to um, the Black Plague. You had a population crash. And so the resources that had been available during that the, the medieval warm period, which ran from about 1000 AD to, to this, you know, thir early 1300s, came to an end. And the prosperity that accompanied that, that global warmth uh, in terms of an extended growing season, um, you know, higher elevations at which crops could be grown and so on. What you had was a, a well-fed population that was booming for a couple of centuries and increased wealth and trade. And it was this that largely stimulated uh, the Gothic cathedral building era, because a few hundred years earlier than that, uh, Europe just didn't have the resources. 
And then with the onset of global cooling in in the early 1300s, like I said, you had a couple of serious years where basically agriculture in Northern Europe just collapsed completely. And this caused widespread hunger and famine and weakening of immune systems. And then this allowed the onset of, of the Black Plague, which just decimated the population of Europe. And that was largely the end of, you know, the high Middle Ages, as we know it, and the, the Gothic building boom. So, um, and then a lot of the, the, um, the, the, the uh, traditions either became lost or went underground. And this is, I think, when we see the, I'm guessing that this is when we would have seen the first rise of speculative Freemasonry, <laughs> which was basically uh, an attempt to preserve some of the secrets and techniques and traditions of the, of the guild craft builders uh, during the Middle Ages um, from complete loss. And so originally in the, in the guilds, you had to be an actual practicing Mason to become a member. But then as the uh, commissions began to decline and, you know, a lot of this stuff was on the verge of being forgotten. This is when they began to open the ranks to, to non builders. And it became, it shifted from operative masonry to speculative or philosophical masonry. The change was not all at once. It was gradual over a period of centuries. And then in the early 1700s, that's when you had the, the reformulation of these various dispersed lodges uh, into the modern Masonic Lodge around 1717, I think it was. Does that have something to do with uh, why uh america kept the imperial system like the sacred the sacred part of this whole numbering uh the sacred geometry of it all like what why did the rest of the world go to metric if there's such a meaning behind all these numbers well, because because of the fact that the rest of the world did not appreciate that there was this meaning behind the numbers right that, that i mean the, the rest of the world had gone metric a good century century and a half you know already on their way to becoming metric before it was really realized that there is this geometric or sacred basis, if you will, to ancient metrology. And so, yeah, it's a very good question you brought up. The imperial system actually does preserve elements of ancient, very ancient systems of measurement. And the systems of measurement, um, it's interesting that that's coming up now because in our sacred geometry online course, um, one of the things that we're actually getting into now in the second level, about midway through the second level, is sacred metrology mm. and how these how sacred geometry unifies many of these units of measurement that were used throughout history and throughout the ancient world to build the sacred structures. Mm. It's very interesting stuff. Yeah, we'll have to link to that online course. I, I wasn't sure if that was an online course or you had to actually go into a classroom. So that's fascinating. That <laughs> yeah, it's an online course. That's right. great. Everything's in the internet nowadays, Graham. Come yeah, on. that's true. Yeah. So, so going back to the, like, you go way, way back and find out that that these uh, hmm, these the sacred geometry is used in buildings as far as 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 we can we can go back right like you talk about the pyramid and how that might be older so so have you speculated or how do you think this information how how did everybody across the world back then know about this well here's another good question um you know we had we need a context for even addressing a question like that and i think the context 
would work something like this. We have 5,000 years, roughly, of recorded history, and that begins with cuneiform writing. In most standard texts, cuneiform writing in the Fertile Crescent, you know, Samaria, between 4,500, 5,000 years ago, represents the uh, emergence of, of civilization and record, well, recorded, recorded yeah, yeah. as we know it, right? Uh, if we look at, you know, the rise of civilization, we can go back and we'll see references to the emergence of agriculture. And it's usually given as 10,000 years ago. Okay. Uh, the, the first rise of cities, eight, 9,000 years ago. Um, the dispersion of languages, uh, you know, eight to 10,000 years ago. Uh, the domestication of animals, the same thing. Well, as some people might here, say we're domesticated. I've, where did I hear the other day where they said we've become uh, homo sapien domesticus or something like that? <laughs> You know, yeah, I think we're becoming way too tame for our own good. It's, it's, yeah, I think so. So anyways, uh, we go back eight to 10,000 years ago and we find all these elements of things that we think of as, you know, this, this is the first emergence of civilization. Well, we go back a millennium or two earlier than that and we get to this major geological epoch shift mm -hmm. from the Pleistocene to the Holocene. Now, when I was coming through school, the idea, the model of geology was strict gradualism. Yeah, anybody yeah. like an Emanuel Velikovsky or somebody who started talking about catastrophes was considered a crackpot. Well, as it turns out, unless you're in a church, Unless you're in a church, a fundamentalist church, where you, yeah, you think that everything happened in 6,000 years. And if it did, if the whole planet was created in 6,000 years and the, the mountains were built in 6,000 years and all the strata was laid down, of course, then it would have to be necessarily catastrophic. Well, you know, what geologists had done during the 19th century was push the, the, the geological timetable back hundreds of millions of years. So what they then now did was said, well, we've got virtually infinite time to accomplish anything. So when you have virtually infinite time, think about the work that you can do with one drop of water or one grain of sand at a time. At the same time as geological uniformitarianism is, is becoming the dominant uh, model of Earth history, you have Darwinian evolution, which is becoming the dominant model of biological history. And it also requires long, interminably slow incremental changes. Yeah. And so you had these two major paradigms, um, you know, kind of converging and became the, just the dominant way of, of looking at science, um, particularly, you know, biological or geological science around the turn of the century. And anything considered, um, you know, catastrophic was seen as a, a throwback to theological interpretations, biblical fundamentalism. So it was rejected out of hand. So what we see is coming through the 20th century, we see these quote-unquote crackpots who are actually out there in the field looking at evidence that is clearly indicative of some kind of catastrophes. Mm -hmm. And and they kind of, you know, kept kept the paradigm alive. You know, people like Jay Harlan Bretz and, and others, who um, uh, Harvey Harlow Ninninger, who was, was speculating that there had been great catastrophes triggered by asteroid impacts, um, like back in the 1940s when nobody was talking about that at all. Huh. Um, J. Harlan Bretz, I don't know if you, you, you know who he is. He was a geologist who discovered 
the gigantic Missoula flood evidence out in the Pacific Northwest, which mm. was completely outside the conventional framework of geological thinking. Well, you had these guys who were, who were documenting this evidence kind of off on the sidelines. Meanwhile, the geological and, and paleontological community um, are, are, are just not even looking at this stuff because it's so completely outside their framework of thinking. Everything happens slowly. And if you start invoking the idea of, of fast change, rapid change, catastrophic change, well, then you're a crackpot. Well, what happened was is so much of this evidence began to accumulate that eventually um, you begin to have converts. You begin to go admit, you know, and you see this shift happening subtly starting in the 1950s, accelerating through the 60s and 70s. And in the 1980 was the year that, you know, three separate teams published work indicating that the Cretaceous tertiary boundary, the one where the, the you know, the dinosaurs went extinct had been profoundly catastrophic and that it was probably triggered by an impact of something from space. And that marks a major point of departure in, in the thinking of the scientific community and opens the door to the realization that, yeah, catastrophism may actually be a part of the history of the planet. Now, fast forward to where we are now, and I think that really, if you look at the evidence, um, with an unbiased view, you begin to realize that it's the catastrophes that have really been the major shapers of the planet that we live on. And that, and that uh, a short-lived catastrophe that might last anywhere from, you know, days to a few years might compress as much change into hmm. uh, that short period of time as it would otherwise take thousands upon thousands of years of normal change. Okay, now with that context, what we've got to realize is that between 10 and 12,000 years ago, the planet was going through the undergoing this major gear shift, if you will. It was transitioning out of the ice age. Yeah. And, you know, people, unless you've been taught or really thought through, you just don't appreciate how significantly different the planet was during the ice age. And how long was that ice age, by, by the way? I, I need to picture well, like the length of that. Okay. It's generally given as about 100,000 years. Okay. okay. And that's, but that's an older model. Um, again, almost derived from, more steady state conditions. Right, right. Um, whereas what the evidence is showing now is that within that hundred and some thousand years, there were actually uh, interruptions, intervals actually of interglacial warmth. So now what we've got is what's known as the late Wisconsin, which is the final major glacial phase of this presumably hundred thousand year long ice age. <clears throat> and it really began, it's, it's dating as interestingly, showing up at right around 26,000 years ago. And we have evidence in hand now that suggests between roughly 26,000 years ago and 40,000 years ago, the area that was uh, swallowed up by the ice, which was all of Canada and a big chunk of the northern United States, <clears throat> was actually forested between 26 and 40,000 years ago. And the onset of this final phase was quite rapid, like perhaps within a century or two or even less. Hmm. The ice grew very rapidly, and as the ice grew, it was being fed uh, by the hydrological cycle, which is drawing evaporated water out of the ocean. So as the ice is growing, ocean levels are falling. So <clears throat> you basically lost about 7 million square miles of the Earth's surface to the, to the ice, but at the same time gained about 10 million square miles because of the fact that the dropping sea level exposed the continental shelves of the planet. 
which are mostly less than 400 feet in, in depth. And 400 feet is in round numbers about how far sea level dropped. Now, you know, in modern discussions, we're talking about, you know, due to climate change and so forth, you know, one or two feet of sea level change over the next century. But you've got a picture of 400 foot sea level change and what that would do. Right. And so during the Ice Age, um, you know, if you start going back and you look at the climate of the Earth and the distribution of the flora and the fauna and where it would have been um, the most benign place for human beings to form settlements and build communities, or mm -hmm. maybe even cities, mm -hmm. would have been on the coastlines at the time, um, where equatorial currents might have, you know, delivered some heat to provide some uh, uh, respite from the glacial cold. Right. Also along river valleys and probably at lower uh, elevations. Well, with the transition out of the Ice Age, one of the things that I'm trying to do with my work is to to make people aware of how profoundly and extremely catastrophic that transition really was and what it really means to, to rapidly bring up sea level 400 feet. So what we get here is that the, 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 the idea that, you know, had there been established communities of any level of sophistication, they would have probably been on the coastlines, which are now four, under 400, 300, 400 feet of water. So that's why I've kind of maintained for years now that marine geology and marine archaeology are probably really, you know, marine archaeology is probably now the future of, of archaeology. As yeah. If we can if we can begin to discern and already we're seeing discoveries, you know, some of the stuff that Graham Hancock is is doing, like over at Yonaguchi and off the shore of Japan or Okinawa. I don't know how that's going to play out yet, whether that underwater formation is totally natural, totally artificial, or somewhere in between. But it does appear that it's, from what I've learned, it appears to be a natural formation that was carved by humans. But it's now, you know, under 100 feet of seawater, which means you have to go back 10,000 years to find the date at which it would have been, been carved. So what I'm getting at here is that we're kind of in a situation now, and it's seen, it hasn't really sunk through to mainstream academia that we maybe need to be rethinking our history. And I'm trying to get back to, I haven't lost sight of the, of the question that led to this, this <laughs> ramble here, which is, which is that, where did this come from? Well, when we go back and we look at the very beginning of recorded history, 5,000 years ago, we find this very sophisticated knowledge. We find knowledge of astronomy, of geometry, of, of engineering, um, of, of geology and geodesy, incorporated into all of these structures that we're finding be, that are between four and 5,000 years old. So what we're seeing is we're seeing these very simplistic, you know, um, you know, societies that are either hunter gatherers or subsistence farmers, one generation, a generation or two later, they're building these extraordinary temples. Hmm. Where is that impetus coming from? You know, where is the impetus coming from to, to, to suddenly organize on a level that you can build the pyramids of the Giza Plateau or to build Stonehenge or some of the other, you know, in, in North America here, like in Louisiana, there's um, a Poverty Point and a couple of others that are between four and 5,000 huge monumental earthworks that are, you know, between four and 5,000 years old. Hmm. Um, Watkins Break is actually closer to 6,000 years old. And it's an elliptical series of 11 hills that were artificially created by somebody 
and it has very interesting geometry in it. And and some researchers have actually demonstrated that these formations, you know, include um, things like the golden ratio and and other principles of sacred geometry. So where in the world does this come from? Well, here's I'm going to throw this out just as a hypothesis that would need to be, you know, obviously tested against the evidence. Okay. But when you think about human beings on planet Earth, modern human beings, right? How long have we modern humans been occupying this planet? 180, 200,000 years? I don't know. You Mike Cremo might not. say even longer than that. Yeah, he might. Although, you know, I'm basing this on conservative, hard skeletal evidence. Okay. So I'm perfectly willing to think longer than that. But we, for purposes of my the point I'm making, we right. don't really need to. I mean, okay. if we go even 150,000 years, 200,000 years, somewhere in that span of time, we're, we're basically acknowledging that most of the human story on Earth is missing. You know, if we if we, we have this convenient prehistoric model of, of cavemen living in caves, you know, wandering around with their clubs, dragging their, their women folk by the hair or whatever, like alley-oop, yeah. <laughs> in their spare time, you know, maybe painting some, some pretty extraordinary paintings on cave walls. That sounds and, like the life. Now you have to pay big bucks to go do something like that these days. <laughs> I know. It probably did have its advantages. Um, but at the same time, listen, when you woke up in, in the morning in the, in the Pleistocene, bear in mind that one of your, your major goals of the day was to not be eaten by a giant cave bear or, or a saber-toothed cat or a dire wolf. So, you know, your, your priorities might have actually been a little different uh, during the Ice Age. Although now what I'm getting to is that <clears throat> there's there's no reason to reject out of hand the possibility of sophisticated civilizations, you know, 15 or 20,000 years ago. And usually most critics will then say, I mean, like, for example, in Graham Hancock's work, you know, I've read a lot of the critics uh, of of his work who are, who are very dismissive, kind of, you know, rolling their eyes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ancient civilizations. Yeah. Well, if there was all these ancient civilizations. Where's the evidence? Yeah. yeah. I, well, listen, my friend, what you don't, what you're failing to realize is how extensively this planet has been remodeled in the last 10 or 20,000 years. Yeah. And 10,000 years is nothing really. I, I feel like we, like if we live a hundred years, I don't feel like 10,000 years is a long time. Really? It just, no. seems, it just I mean, it's so, so I've got a question before and it kind of goes along with this whole thing from red pill junkie in the chat room before I, before I forget. And he's asking, is there any evidence or have you come across anything about, about uh, these ancient megalithic sites being built by different builders, not necessarily Homo sapiens, but say Denisovians or Neanderthals? Not really. That's an interesting question. I, that I don't know. Now, there's, when you get into the, the mythology of it, yeah, you find interesting things, you know, like, um, you know, there's tales about giants in in ancient Britain building some of the megaliths. Now, what does that mean? I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> certainly, you know, we do know that the Pleistocene has, has actually been, uh, Charles Darwin himself referred to the Pleistocene as an age of giants. Of course, what he's referring to is there's the, the giant megafauna that's mostly went extinct during the transition. But clearly, you know, during the late Pleistocene, things were very big. You know, you had the, the, the North American Pleistocene lion, for example. Typical examples of that that have been found suggest that it was 50% greater in body mass than a large African lion. You know, you had 
giant ground sloths that were the size of elephants. You had the Colombian and mammoth or mammothus, mammothus imperator, as it was called, that stood 16 feet tall at the shoulders. Uh, the list went on and on. You had beavers that weighed five and 600 pounds, armadillos, almost the size of, you know, small Volkswagens. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. You had these giant animals, and that was one of the characteristics of the fauna of the end of the Ice Age. Well, I think it would be fair to ask, you know, perhaps just as you had these specimens of giant animals, could it have been that there were giant hominids as well? Right, human right. Beings? And there's some tantalizing evidence out there suggesting that there was. You keep you keep jump you keep uh, beating me to my my questions for you. <laughs> so that was one of my my questions. Are you talking about the ancient giants in America, like from the guys like Richard Dewars and that kind of research? It's Zimmerman. Well, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with that research. However, there is a lot of stuff, particularly from the 19th century where they've uncovered skeletons of giants, seven, I say giants, I'm not talking about, you know, 50 feet tall, I'm talking about seven to eight feet tall, um, in some cases larger than that. Yeah. And a lot of these, you know, you, we don't have photographic evidence, we, we have, but what we do have is a lot of accounts, and, and, you know, oftentimes written by very trustworthy individuals, doctors, theologians, you know, people who were there when, and, and witnessed these excavations, in some cases, Multiple people signed affidavits claiming, yes, we did see this. We saw that eight-foot skeleton that was dug out of this mound. Until the Smithsonian came around and grabbed it. That's what it seems like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That uh, seems uh, to be, yeah, if it looks like a duck and it cracks like a duck. Yeah. So there's some very interesting stuff regarding, um, you know, larger than, than modern humans. And it does suggest, you know, there's so many traditions, um, you know, mythical tradition. Of course, we all know the story of David and Goliath. But, you know, the, the, the ancient mythology is replete with stories about larger than normal human beings. Um, and then there was the work of, oh, God, what was his name? The Swedish uh, geologist in the, around the turn of the century who, uh, in northern Sweden, he dug up several skeletons. <laughs> that he claimed were eight and nine feet tall. I'm trying to remember his name. Um, it'll come to me in a second. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that. that you know, it really suggests that this the standard view of history is leaving an awful lot out. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so since we're on that kind of topic, uh, this this ancient knowledge of sacred geometry, there is, you know, you can't help but ask the question since so many civilizations around the world have uh, legends and myths about star people and contact with, you know, extraterrestrial civilizations. I mean, what do you think about, about that? You know, some of this, and I'm not trying to discount the, the smarts of any, you know, Paleolithic man, but um, what about that? You know, some, some visitations <laughs> to disseminate some of this knowledge. Well, I'm open-minded, but at the same time, I, the way I look at it is even though it's, I'm open-minded about it, and, and it's possible. I don't think we need aliens. Um, basically, if we could have, I mean, all you have to do is look at look at our own modern history. Look at the, since the, the scientific enlightenment and the, the rise of science, you know, since the, the Renaissance times, and how quickly we have progressed to the fact that we can sit here now doing what we're doing on Skype right now. Right. Um, 
you know, we're, we're linking the whole planet is becoming linked into this, into a, a, a grid where we can begin to communicate instantaneously around the planet because of the fact that we have the satellite system. You know, I mean, think about Google Earth. Think about, I mean, all of the technologies and, and scientific breakthroughs that have occurred in the last century. I mean, my grandfather, um, you know, who I knew well, when he was a kid, there were no airplanes. You know, there were no, they were still in the horse and buggy days, right? So here we are only a few generations later, and look at how far we've come. Now, let's suppose that in the next decade or two, we have an environmental catastrophe on the same scale as what occurred at the Pleistocene-Holocene transition 12,000 years ago. Right. What would we expect to see of our civilization 10,000 years from now? Not much at all. Yeah, that's hard to imagine because because with all the you know the steel and the glass and the big cities, it's it's really hard to imagine. But I I've heard you explain it before, and it, and it kind of does make sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean the 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 infrastructure we've created requires constant maintenance because immediate as soon as we stop maintaining it, it begins to degrade. Nature quickly begins to seize control, and it doesn't take long. I mean we've probably talked about that on a number of other. Uh, interviews that I've done, but you know the idea is that you know it doesn't take long, you know, for the um, a century or two, and all the grounding systems in these tall buildings is are going to have have basically um, deteriorated to where they're no longer effective. So then, what happens is you have um, lightning strikes, and these lightning strikes are going to start fires. And you know, once the the uh, the glass begins to break, and you have weather entering in, you know, the steel begins to rust mm-hmm. and three or four centuries of the steel rusting, the buildings are going to be collapsing into heaps. Give them another couple of millennium, the steel is going to have rusted away. It's going to become completely oxidized. It'll be hills. Yeah, and you're going to have nature taking over. You'll have soil layers forming over the piles of rubble. And, you know, another few millennium go by. You know, you can be a hunter out walking in the forest, going over hill and having no idea that that hill was once the rubble of a city. Hmm. You see, and, 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 you know, of all the architectural materials that we could use to build enduring infrastructure, stone would be the most enduring. Steel is not that durable over the long term. So, yeah, I mean, and, and this is even just, you know, there what was a, if one of the Discovery Channel or Smithsonian or somebody did a thing a couple of years ago about what would happen if, if humans just abandoned, like, what if we just left the planet? Yeah, yeah, I remember. I think that was on the History Channel where they showed what would happen after this many years and that that many yeah. years, and it doesn't it doesn't take long. That's funny because that's when I was whenever I watched Ancient Aliens, that seemed to be that was more what I took away from it than mm-hmm. aliens. So much was that there was something something going on in our past that you know humanity's cycle has been more like up and down than we think. Yes, you know and, what. And that's- Go ahead. Oh, no, I, I just had an example because we had a flood here in Calgary a couple of years ago, last the, the summer, not this summer, but last spring or whatever. And um, I was I was uh, traveling to a little river area where we see the Bull River. And I was with a couple of friends that used to go there all the time. 
And this was after the flood and there was all the remnants of the flood and everything. And the river had actually completely changed course. Like what we are standing on was hundreds of yards of gravel and rock where the river used to be. And the river in a day or two or overnight had completely rerouted itself. And that was just a bit of a shock to me going, holy fuck, in, in a day, this this river, like probably all the way down for hundreds of miles, it had just shifted itself. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was talking about earlier when I was saying that these catastrophes, whether they're even local or regional catastrophes or something on a much larger scale, they will do as much geomorphic work in a day or two sometimes as otherwise might take centuries or thousands of years. And what you saw is a, is a really good example of that. Um, there was a flood. So you guys are out of Calgary? Yeah. Yep. Well, do you probably you probably know about Okotoks Rock then, right? We South know, of Calgary, we know where rock. Okotoks is. You know I, down I there. I play there, baseball there. there. Okay, but you you don't remember the big rock? No, I've it's never heard of it. The, the, the town of Okotoks is okay. named for the Indian term. I forget which tribe it was uh, that named the big rock. It sits out on the on the prairie south oh. of of Calgary. Okay, so now you guys have an assignment, and that is you have to make a short pilgrimage down to the Big Rock. Okay. Yeah. Is man. that where they named the brewery after the Big Rock, maybe? Maybe. Big Rock Brewery. Yeah. Well, it would have to be, right? Okay. Yeah. Okay, what you have there is an 18,000-ton metaquartzite erratic boulder Oof. that was emplaced by a flood. And when you're standing here looking at this thing and trying to comprehend the flood that would have moved that boulder... <laughs> You're going to start to get a sense of the things that I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and what's really bizarre about this is that based upon the, the, the sedimentology of the, of the ground in which it's sitting and it's partially sunk into the ground and it's broken into three pieces, um, it was not transported by normal glacier, uh, you know, like a normal glacial erratic. Because of the fact that you, if you go look at it, you'll see that it has sharp corners. And, um, you know, it's not ground off like a, like a normal glacial erratic is. Yeah. And, and here's the other bizarre thing. It's, it's a meta type of meta quartzite rock whose origin, there's two mountains, Mount Robeson and Mount Edith Cavell that have that same type of rock. Huh. Now this Okotoks is part of what's known as the Foothills Erratics Train because it reaches for 500 miles from the mouth of the Athabasca River down into Montana. Okay. Okotoks is the biggest one of the, of there's thousands of them, but Okotoks is the biggest, most impressive one. But the really bizarre thing about this, and when you're standing there looking at this massive boulder and thinking about the forces that could move it, appreciate the fact that its origin was on the western side of the Continental Divide. Mm. And it's now sitting on the eastern side of the Rocky Mountains out on the prairie. Oh, so those so, mountains are on Vancouver side. Yes. Holy yes. fuck. Yeah, on the Vancouver side. So um And and what you're saying is it it's not over the mountains. Well it didn't and it didn't go over a long period of time, right? It got there pretty quick. Oh yeah, it had to have gotten there quick. Absolutely. It got there quick. Um and that's that's part of the mystery of how you transport an eighteen thousand ton boulder across the continental divide and put it two hundred miles, you know, south of its original position. Um, Indians without, are pretty tough dudes. <laughs> yeah, obviously. 
Well, you know, it's clearly indicative of some type of a major catastrophe. And the flood, it most likely was transported on an iceberg because of its pristine condition. Um, and the fact that there's a couple of thousand of these erratics strewn over the prairie suggests that there was, you know, an, an equivalent number of icebergs. And so what you had basically is an event that appears to have dated from right around this major transition that we're talking about, mm -hmm. uh, you know, 12,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. So um, once, you begin, once you guys go down there and look at this thing, you know, you, you may want to know the whole story of it, which I'll be glad to relate to you. Even, you know, I can even send you pictures, uh, email you some photos of it so you know what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I need to go check that out for sure. That's, a, that's like literally 20 minutes from the studio. Yeah, it's in your backyard. And, and what that's going to do is that's going to be the thing that kind of, I think, opens your mind opens your eyes to these kinds of events that we're talking about here because that the forces that place those erratics i think were part of a global event and a global event that had you know di very diverse regional expressions but um you know this in fact in the next in september i'm going with graham hancock and we're, we may even we'll have to see how much time we have but we're going to be starting in washington state and coming across Idaho and Montana, and we're going to make a, a, a road trip from the uh, West Coast, probably the Portland area, to the Minneapolis, Minnesota. And wow. what we're going to do is we're going to follow the southern margin of the Great Ice Sheet, and we're going to be documenting evidence that it underwent this catastrophic meltdown. And if we get a chance to divert, if we have an extra day or two, we're going to divert up into Canada. And we may, because I'd like to show Graham the big rock. So he begins to really appreciate the kind of forces we're talking about here. <clears throat> but, well, um, well, if you guys make it up to Canada, we'll have to have you guys in the igloo here for for an in person uh, for an in person yeah. chat. Yeah, and if we don't, what we should do is stay in touch, and then early next summer, I'm planning a major trip that's going to uh, explore Alberta and British Columbia. Wow! Um, because I think British Columbia, if you go up in the Canadian Rockies. Uh, do you know where Prince George is? Oh, yeah. British, yeah. Yeah. I think that was ground zero, one of the multiple ground zeros of the last great global catastrophe. Wow. That's the things I want to explore. Wow. Because, you see, we're talking about a massive, massive, extreme, severe disruption of the ice sheet complex around 12,000 years ago, 13,000 years ago. And as a consequence of that, there were just these enormous floods of meltwater issuing off the front of the ice sheet hmm. and um, in some cases these meltwater floods approached a billion cubic feet per second which is I'm, I mean even as i say it i'm knowing you probably don't have any context or handle for even understanding what a billion cubic feet per second no looks like no yeah, nobody so, does well that's funny because when we were even watching uh i don't know if i was with you but we were watching some old footage of the tokyo tsunami <laughs> And it's like watching that, it's like you're watching a movie. It's surreal. And that's like, that's like probably 0.00001% of what was going on when these, when, what well, what probably amounts to what was the biblical flood and all the floods from all the different religions was probably so fucking crazy. Yeah. You were watching um, the, 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 what, with the Asian tsunami, the, the Japanese one or the, the Indonesian one of 2004. Either uh, one. I mean, it's going to, it's mind blowing, isn't it? On that scale, and you're looking like the the, the Japanese tsunami. 
I think the highest recorded wave in one area, and it was because it had the funneling effect of a bay that it went into, was 80 feet. The, I think the average height of the wave when it made landfall was like 20 to 30 feet, right? Well, now picture, and I use the, the image of a tsunami to try to convey to people what's happening because the meltwater floods that came off the ice sheet were, in fact, really the only comparable things things we could compare them to in modern experience is a tsunami. But there are places uh, like in uh, Montana, Idaho, and Washington, and in British Columbia, where the water, like in some of these valleys, uh, like the Clark Fork Valley, which is one I'll be traversing. I don't know if you're, have you gotten down into Montana, Idaho, Washington much at all? Uh, no. Did you ever get down that way? No. Well, actually, uh, I've got a, quite a few friends that jump over to like Whitefish area. Uh-huh, uh, yeah, that's north of Flathead Lake. Yeah, I've never, yeah. I've never been myself. We did drive to to Minnesota a couple of years ago for the Paradigm Symposium, but um, we had considered going through Montana, but it added like three hours to an already like twenty hour right. drive. So exactly. Well, there are places there. Now you picture the the the, the wave that's uh, approaching uh, Japan and causing all of that destruction, thirty to say fifty feet. Well, some of these waves of meltwater coming off the ice sheet, you know, 12,000 years ago, varied between 500 and 2,000 feet deep. I'll say that again, between 500 and 2,000 feet deep. There are mountain valleys in Montana, in Washington, in Idaho, where if you know what you're looking for, you can stand on the valley floor and you can see the high water marks on the valley walls where the water, the floodwaters scoured away and left broken, uh, you know, tortured rock with no bed, with no topsoil. And you can very clearly see a line of demarcation between the broken rock, the, the, the etched rock, and then the tree line. And the tree line starts, say, at, at 4,000, let's say, for example, 4,200 feet above sea level. And you're standing on a valley floor that's 2,000 feet above sea level. So what you're basically seeing is the passage of a flood through that valley that was over 2,000 feet deep. Now, that's really almost inconceivable. Now, right there in the Clark Fork Valley, and you may be tempted like to pull up Google Earth if you get a chance, look at the Clark Fork Valley. <clears throat> or, uh, and what you'll see there is a valley that's basically about seven miles wide, uh, varies between three miles and seven miles wide. And water flowing through there, again, was over 2,000 feet deep. And it was probably moving on the order of 50 to 60 miles an hour. Now, the peak discharge of that water, that flood water passing through that valley, is estimated to be about 350 million cubic feet per second. Okay, so we're talking about maybe a third of the largest discharge estimated from the um, the melting of the ice 12,000 years ago. If you took every single stream, creek, and river flowing on Earth today, every single one, right, added them together, I mean, every river, the Mississippi, the Missouri, the Mackenzie, the Yukon, the Columbia, the Rhone, the Rhine, the Thames, the <laughs> Nile, the Amazon, every one, large and small, added them together, multiply that by 10, and you still wouldn't have the flow that was going through the Clark Fork Valley. And that was just one of hundreds of flows of meltwater coming off the ice sheet. 
And all of this is ultimately flowing into the oceans of the world and rapidly bringing sea level up. And the only, so the civilization before us must have been burning too many fossil fuels, yeah. too. <laughs> oh, obviously, that's what it was. Yeah, they reached the tipping point. They went from uh, 399. They went from 400 parts per million to 401 parts per yeah, million. Yeah, fucking boom. That was it. No, I suspect what it was was a change in the astronomical environment. In, in looking for triggers, I think the most likely thing was that the Earth got caught in a cosmic swarm for a few millennium. Yeah, I think we, we talked to Robert Schock uh, about a month and a half ago, and he was talking about um, solar, solar some sort of solar outburst or solar activity causing a, um, a rapid melt of the of the uh, glaciers and that's kind of why the people who maybe originally made the the easter island heads there the the mountain the mountain yeah maori 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 the maoris yeah that how all the quarries were underwater there and he figured there would have been a couple hundred foot rise in water or something like that yeah now i you know i'm my i i'm certainly open to to robert shock's idea of of solar flares I'm still more inclined to think it's more like a celestial bombardment rather than sun. However, we have to understand that the, the most cutting-edge models suggest that the solar system is a, operates as a dynamic unity. So there are variations in the flux of material into the inner solar system from the Oort cloud into Kuiper disk. Mm-hmm. There are also variations in the um, in the in in the solar output um, changes in the heliosphere that are probably linked to the orbits of the planets. Um, some of the work of, uh, let's see, Rhodes W. Fairbridge and others, the late Rhodes W. Fairbridge, if anybody listening wants to look him up, mm. um, he has done some very, did very interesting work showing that the, um, that the gravitational influence of the planet can actually, uh, of the planets, particularly Jupiter and Saturn, can induce changes in the in the heliosphere that could then in turn affect the geomagnetic field of the earth, um, which would um, have environmental and climatological consequences. Um, My research, which would be difficult to go into when we're just talking verbal without the, without uh, graphics and and imagery to, to explain it basically would suggest that the, that all of the periods of the planets are linked in this kind of cosmic harmony and that also the delivery of material to the inner solar system, such as comets, uh, because uh, what ha- there's very interesting research that's come out in the last oh, decade or so suggesting that it's uh, conjunctions of the large outer planets that cause comets in the inner reservoir of the Kuiper disk to become unstable and begin to migrate towards the sun. Huh. Well, when, if you have a large cometary object, uh, let's say 20 to 50 miles or 100, even 100 miles in diameter. And these objects begin to come into the inner solar system. They may undergo a hierarchy of disintegrations that requires maybe 10 or 20,000 years to go from a single integrated comet nucleus into a meteor stream. And during this time, the meteor stream and the comet orbit undergoes precessional changes, which can cause epochs uh, where these streams are passing passing through the Earth's orbit, right? So yeah. what happens is when Earth's orbit is intersecting the orbit of a disintegrating comet or a meteor stream, 
the 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 potential for an impact goes up exponentially from from the normal background. Right. And and there's a group of British neocatastrophists, um, <laughs> Bill William Napier, Victor Klub, and a number of others that have been working on this since the early 80s or even late 70s, suggesting that there are epochs of accelerated bombardment, which are generally caused by large comets being delivered to the inner solar system, undergoing a hierarchy of disintegrations, and then Earth encountering the byproducts of those disintegrations. And let's say the Earth uh, runs through a, a stream of cosmic dust. Well, what that's going to do is it's going to increase the opacity of the atmosphere reduce the amount of solar energy that can reach the surface and induce a global cooling. And, you know, let's say that on the other hand, uh, debris falls into the ocean and lofts uh, water vapor into the atmosphere. Well, you know, the, the, the most effective greenhouse gas is water vapor. Wow. So you can Ooh, have so water car, not a good idea. So what say that again? So the water car is not a good idea. <laughs> Oh, I don't know about the water car, but <laughs> maybe <know> not. <laughs> so, so is it is it is, water? Is is that part of a regular cycle, like the, of the great year? Ben, is that why? Is well, that why people think that uh, you know every so many still, thousands of years? Isn't it? Yeah, but the Earth, like, how long does it take for the solar system to go around like the center of the galaxy? It seems like the Earth has oh, takes a long time before the Earth is ever yeah. in the same place again. It's like it's a new, every day is a new day, man, new adventure. Yeah, it, well, it takes a couple hundred million years for the Earth to go around the galaxy completely. Now, of course, within that span of time, <clears throat> the solar system is oscillating above and below the galactic plane. Most of the debris of the solar system and dark matter is concentrated along the galactic plane. So part of the hypothesis of, of people like Victor Klub and, and others of the of the neocatastrophist school is that, um, you know, Michael Rampino, I think, has done a bunch of work along these lines and others suggesting that um, when the solar system is passing through the galactic plane, we're going to be more subject to disruptions. Now, you've got a picture that we think of the solar system as, you know, not eight planets plus Pluto and Pluto is the outermost. And beyond that, there's nothing. Well, that's that's an old model, obsolete. What we now know is that outside of the orbit of Neptune, uh, uh, Uranus and Neptune is this um, disk of, <clears throat> excuse me, billions of comets. Yeah, the Oort cloud, isn't it? Or the Oort, yeah, the Oort cloud? No, no, this is right around the planet, I think. Oh. Come up. Yeah, this is the Kuiper disk. Named after Gerard Kuiper, who who first theorized that it existed, and outside of the Kuiper disk is the Oort cloud, and the Oort cloud is like a spherical shell of hundreds of billions of comets. Right now, think of it this way: you've got this spherical shell of comets that reaches literally halfway to the nearest stars. Right, a couple of light years out, it reaches, and then on the inner uh, stages of the Kuiper disk, it grades in uh, of the Oort cloud. It grades into this Kuiper disk. Right uh. now, it appears that the Kuiper disk is kind of like a holding reservoir between the outer zones of the Oort cloud and the inner planetary zone. The Oort cloud seems to be affected by forces on a galactic level, like changes in the galactic environment, but like potentially, like I described the passage of the solar system through the galactic plane, right. perhaps nearby supernovas causing di disruptions within the Oort cloud, which will send a scattering of comets that will begin 
making long spiral orbits that will bring them into the Kuiper disc. Hmm. Some, okay, that becomes like a holding pen, if you will. Now, the inner zones of the Kuiper disc, it's in a quasi-stable situation where, you know, it takes very little to perturb them in your orbit, but there actually isn't many forces, gravitational or otherwise, that can perturb them. However, recent work has suggested that conjunctions of the large outer planets can cause enough of a gravitational nudge on the quasi-stable comets in the inner Kuiper disk to dislodge them. But once they become dislodged, they're going to do one of two things. They're either going to move away from the sun or they're going to move closer to the sun. If they move closer to the sun um, and they become within the orbit of Neptune, well, what happens now, now they're within the gravitational field of the planets and you can actually begin sort of, it's been likened to a bucket brigade where the planets, it just so happens coincidentally that their masses and their distances are exactly spaced such that they would need to be in order to transfer comets from the Kuiper disk to the inner solar system. Now that has some interesting implications. One is that it, it suggests that if the, uh, the um, models, the exobiological models of of life's origin on Earth are accurate, which I think that they're probably on the right track, assuming that the that the introduction of life on Earth was extraterrestrial, like panspermia kind of thing. Panspermia, exactly. And so, if comets are the primary instrument by which um, you know biological precursors are delivered to Earth, okay. Now, what you have is that it requires the architecture of the entire solar system to accomplish that. <laughs> you see? Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, again, it's like when we start, when, when we, like the SETI program, where we're looking at other planets, we're discovering there's all kinds of other planets. But what we see when we look at our planet is sort of like the, uh, the Goldilocks um, paradigm, which yeah. is that, you know, um, it has to be just right. You know, it's either, you know, too big or too little, too close to the sun, too far away, you know, the presence of a moon like we have would be absolutely imperative because without a moon, you have no tides. Without tides, you don't have an inner tidal zone. Without an inner tidal zone, you can't get life from the oceans onto the land. Yeah. It's really, when you begin to look at it, it's almost as if, you know, I hate to say this. Design? Design, yes. Yeah. It does. It has that, either that or just by the random coincidence of you know the universe and creation we happen to be inhabiting the one system where everything is just right
when you when you go through your uh, your sacred ge- geometry and you start looking at the moon's Does it ever diameter. look like computer code? Yeah, well, that's the thing. When he when he plots out the Earth and the moon and all the, the, the pyramid being the Earth side, like, that doesn't really have anything to do with that. But the uh, all the connections there, it made me think of, like, simulated universe. I mean, it, it, you can't help but wonder if it's just, you know, mathematically made. And then you wonder if those extra... If you can extrapolate those numbers and those correlations you have within our little planet and sun and moon can you make it you know uh out into the the galaxy and and even you know like the milky way or, or how far can you extrapolate that and i mean why wouldn't why can you go all the way to the universe and there's all these correlations going all the way through you know what my suspicion is that once we have the, the perspective that will allow us to have an opinion on that is yeah. that we will find that that yes that the that the geometry pervades the entire universe um, and, and it seems like it does. And, you know, I, I haven't really immersed myself into cosmology like I which is really the subject you would probably need to to be familiar with to have, you know, to even venture a guess as to what is the large scale geometric structure of the universe. I think there's some interesting work going along going on along those lines. I just haven't had time to look into it yet. Right. Damn so I, I, I need. I need 48 hours in a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but you have obviously contemplated the simulated universe or the digital universe or, or it being by design as opposed to by chance. Oh, yeah. 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 The term for that is teleology. The evidence for design or purpose in the natural order. Huh. And, yeah. So there's actually a term for it. Mm. And and yes, I, I tend to gravitate towards the teleological interpretation of reality. <laughs> You know, yeah. what, what's the alternative? It's all just random. I mean, you know, that's that's a leap of faith as well to say, well, it's all just an accident. Thomas Fusco would say that's like, uh, what would it be like the tornado hitting the scrapyard and assembling a 57 Chevy? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good analogy. I've kind of said, yeah, that's well, you know, when talking about the, the moon, you know, the the the. the uh, dominant theory of lunar origins now is that earth got struck by a mars sized object and all of this debris was ejected into space and somehow it consolidated into our our moon as we know it and really when you begin to look at the mathematics of it 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 just doesn't work right Um, and and you know i kind of used that analogy i said well if you you know you took and you it'd be like dropping a, a nuclear bomb on on the taj mahal and then the or the rubble of it comes down in it, or or you just you you blow something up and the rubble comes down and makes a Taj Mahal. Yeah, you know, or a tornado comes into a junkyard and and you know rebuilds a fifty eight ship. Which, by the way, is it is that what you said a fifty eight ship? Fifty seven. Fifty seven. Oh, fifty seven. Okay, we're off because you know I, I, I keep this kind of on the down low. I lost my virginity in a fifty eight ship <laughs> in in the back seat. So oh, that's hilarious. But uh, I almost lost mine at 79, but (laughs) (laughs) almost, yeah, okay, yeah. So uh, I had an old Caprice classic, it was pretty big. Ah, yeah, yeah. the good old days. (laughs) So, speaking of uh, destroying, uh, like getting hit by large rocks, what would be the what would be the size of a of an asteroid to hit us that would that would basically ruin us? Like, has anybody looked at like what that size would have to be? about a, uh, they used to say a kilometer to one mile in diameter would be a global catastrophe okay. enough to bring civilization down. 
Right. Not, you know, it would not necessarily like cause a mass extinction event. Right. Um, locally, yes, absolutely. I mean, a kilometer asteroid would essentially devastate an area the size of America. Right. Um, and other parts of the planet would certainly survive, you know, biologically, ecologically. It wouldn't be a, a, a catastrophe on the scale of the, the KT boundary, which was a six-mile diameter asteroid. Um, but it would certainly cause a global event that would, um, you know, inject huge amounts of, of dust material into the atmosphere. It would probably cause a collapse of agriculture that would last anywhere from two to five years. So Enough you, to basically wipe out the food supply of the planet. Um, as long as they can but, still get mac and cheese. <laughs> well, that would be the main thing. You know, probably McDonald's would be one of the few things that survive. <laughs> so I guess. Wait, wait, be, wait, 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 wait. Okay. So on. before we go too far, you had mentioned like you don't, uh, you don't buy the whole collision creating the moon theory. Um, do you have any sort of take on where, where and when the moon came from? Like, do you think it's artificial possible that. Yeah, no, I was going to say or captured, because if it was captured, it would cause some pretty crazy weather or ocean movement on Earth, I would imagine. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I, I'm i inclined towards the capture hypothesis for a number of reasons, but um, the problem with the capture hypothesis is the capture window is so narrow that any object, let's say the size of the moon approaching the Earth, is, you know, it's going to be approaching on most likely a hyperbolic orbit. And what's going to happen is, is that it's going to be deviated from its orbit uh, and change the eccentricity of its orbit and most likely just fly past the Earth. The second possibility, but much more remote than that, is that it would actually collide with the Earth. The third possibility, which is even orders of magnitude more remote than, than either a collision or simply a, a deflection in its flyby, would be capture into a relatively circular orbit. And yeah, but everything would, else is a billion to one and it all seems to be hitting, so why not? Yeah, right. So why not? Right. Yeah, well, but if it was captured, could it be captured into its static orbit that it I don't know what you call that orbit what the moon has where it's always got well, the same tidal, side facing locked or whatever? Yeah, uh uh yeah, that's uh basically like a spin orb one to one spin orbit coupling it's called where the where the um the uh, rotation of the moon on its axis is exactly the same period as its revolution about the Earth. And that gets us into some really interesting technical mysteries about things that I usually don't talk about. Um, Sweet. <laughs> because I'm saving it for my book. Oh, but you're going to mention a little bit of it here, right? Oh, okay, a little bit. <laughs> well, first of all, you go out. The thing I do is I tell people in order to get ready, for this book about the moon, go out and start just becoming familiar with the moon. And you'll begin to notice the things, a few things, like we just talked about the one-to-one -one spin orbit coupling. Well, that is, is that no matter what time of day, what time of month, what time of year you go out and look at the moon, yeah, full moon, quarter moon, you know, you're going to see the same face of the moon always turn towards the earth, right? Yeah. Always. It's always the same face, the face with the, with most of the, the Maria on it. Um, you know, the great, the great, yeah, uh, the, yeah, the gray spots, the gray spots. Right. Well, you see, that is unusual. I mean, see, the, the thing about the moon is it's not behaving itself. Um, <laughs> the thing you got to bear in mind is it's, it's the earth's gravitational field is acting on the moon as if it's got a dual moment of inertia rather than a single 
center of mass around which the moon is free to rotate, it's literally like two moments of inertia that the Earth's gravity field can grab onto and lock it into, again, here's where I wish we had some visuals. I'm sitting here with my fists. <laughs> you know, one's the moon and one's the Earth, and you can't see them. But, but essentially, what that means is, is that the moon has not settled out to the least minimum energy potential, which is the form of a sphere. Given that the moon's uh, uh, average density is only slightly greater than half that of the Earth, it should be plenty flexible enough and plastic enough that it should have settled down uh. to a spherical shape, at which point the Earth's gravity, it would become released from Earth's gravity field and it would be free to rotate on its in, any axis. However, what we have is the inconsistency between the overall density of the moon and the assumed plasticity of a, of a spherical object that would have that density and the fact that it's locked into Earth's orbit. Uh, which basically suggests that the, the, the moon is extremely uh, an extremely rigid body. And the thing that, that also supports structural that. Structural almost. Structural almost, yeah. And the thing that supports that also is the fact that when you begin looking at lunar craters, um, like when you look at craters on the Earth, for example, there's a ratio between width and depth. And it's usually 20, 10, depending on, the density of the target material, the density of the object coming in, its angle, its velocity, all of that, the, the crater that is formed will be between 10 and 20 times as wide as it is deep, right? So what you see on the moon is when you start looking at craters, they're obeying that proportion, of, mm. that, width, that width to depth proportion, up to about three to five miles in diameter. Once they get up to about 10 miles, what you oh. see is, they, they keep getting deeper, right? But then yeah. once they get 10 miles, 20 miles, 30 miles in diameter, they don't get any deeper. It seems like they have a maximum <laughs> depth of about three miles. What do you got to do? You say, you mentioned the Maria, the gray, the gray areas. Those are basically basaltic lava plains that were formed during giant impacts. Yet, unlike a normal crater, and I don't know if you've ever seen a meteor crater, there's a great one down in Arizona where you really see the classic bowl-shaped form. It's, it's uh, about uh, 3,500 feet wide and yeah. 600 feet deep. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and it conforms to the expected scaling ratios of width to depth. But if you look at the lunar craters, again, once you get to about three miles in depth, they don't get any deeper no matter how wide they get, which again suggests hmm. an extraordinarily rigid crust, a crust that has the ability to withstand enormous impacts without you know, there being significant depth of excavation resulting from those impacts. Yeah, and you hear stories so, about it uh, ringing kind of like a gong when they were launching probes into it back in the 60s. Yes, yes. It had a long wave train. It sometimes lasted four to six hours rather than being damped out in a matter of minutes. Yeah, yeah. It, it was described as, as ringing like a bell. And that's, again, peculiar and suggests that there's an enormous amount of scattering of acoustic waves in the internal interior of the moon. So then you have to ask, well, what would cause that? Well, what would cause that essentially is, is voids within the moon. Hollow moon. It, yeah. So I'll, go, I'll, I'll say this much. I think that there are tremendous secrets awaiting us on the moon. Um, the moon is really a mysterious object. And the more you begin to look at the moon, the more you begin to realize 
how how strange it actually is. Um, there was a number back in the in the early days. Uh, it was uh, one MIT physicist. Uh, I think it's Nafi Kiksov was his name, I believe. In 1981, said, "Quote: It's far easier to explain why the moon shouldn't be there than to explain its existence." <laughs> and uh, Harold C. Urey, uh, who did a lot of work on impact geology, he was a he was a physicist, Nobel Prize winning physicist. He said, "Quote: All explanations for the origin of the moon are improbable." Nobody's ever talking about and, that. And then why do they? And then that. Then that kind of makes you wonder why we didn't go back. Why? Why yeah. we haven't been back? I know. Well, again, like I say, I believe that we've got some pretty some unexpected surprises waiting for us on the moon. On the dark side, especially. Yeah, <laughs> not the dark side. Well, it's the far uh, side. <laughs> you guys might look at uh, the Google moon maps and look at the south pole i'll just i'll tell you to do that much okay good more homework i love it more homework yes so should we be more worried about an impact on a massive impact on the moon like do you think with earth's atmosphere being a little bit more helping us uh, you know protect ourselves a little bit more that you know we would be in for trouble if the moon got smacked pretty hard too oh yeah if it got smacked pretty hard but bear in mind the moon is going to be much less susceptible to impacts than the earth um like you said, I mean, um, what why is that? Maybe the moon's well, there to stop it. It like moves. Well, for one thing, the the Earth is eighty times more massive than the moon, so it's it's going to be much more. Uh, it's going to, in fact, more gravity. More gravity. It's got. It's a larger target. Um, material flying into the inner solar system is going to be much more likely to strike the Earth than it is the moon. However, we've seen some some fairly there's evidence that there's been some fairly large impacts on the moon within the within the last millennium hmm. um the crater giordano bruno may have been uh caused by an impact what was it about 700 years ago that was actually witnessed by a group of canterbury monks and written down and um oh an astronomer i think hartung was his name did did research in the 80s um by analyzing the the account of these Canterbury monks, the the date, the time, and what they saw on the, the the limb of the moon, and he was able to discern that where where they would have actually seen an event, and then looking there, discovered that there was an extremely young crater, um, which was named Giordano Bruno after <laughs> the great you know metaphysician who was burned at the stake for believing that. Uh, you know, there was other life in the universe and that the earth went around the sun and other politically incorrect ideas of his day. Um, but yeah, so this crater was named after him. Again, you could look it up online and you'll see pictures of it. And, and it's when, when, when the moon is struck by an object, uh, debris shoots out. And as it sits there and gets bombarded by cosmic rays, it darkens. So the lighter the debris apron is around a, an impact crater, the younger that crater is. You see. Oh yeah, okay. Huh. And and the the debris apron around Giordano Bruno is ex, is extremely light. Um, it appears to be extremely. Also, looking at um, you know crater chronologies, it superimposed on you know if you have an older crater and then you have another impact that partially obscures that crater. The one with the broken rim is going to be the older of the craters. So they can do a lot of crater counting to try to set up these chronologies. Right, right. 
And um, all, all the evidence points to Giordano Bruno as being an extremely young creator. I think Hartung, if that's his name correctly, uh, estimated that it was, you know, between 500 and 1,000 years old, which would have put it right in the time frame to have been the, uh, you know, the trigger for the what these Canterbury monks witnessed. Huh. But um, And then did that affect like us at all? And, and then what? Did it affect uh, Earth at all? Does that correlate with any crazy changes at that time? Well, the little, the first phase of the little ice age, uh, perhaps. Uh-huh. <laughs> Maybe. That's a good, very good question. Um, I certainly think that the little ice age was probably related to some kind of cosmic event. Um, it, it really does seem like that. Um, and there is evidence. I think the, the Holocene Working Group has documented evidence now that's pointing to a a, a significant impact event around the early 1300s, which would have been just the exact time, right time frame for the onset of the first phase of the Little Ice Age. Huh. And and also there's evidence emerging that there may have been either an impact or a very large volcanic eruption. I'm leaning towards an impact uh, around between 536 and 544 AD. And back then, I guess if it didn't happen like right in town, nobody would really know about it, right? It's not like here today, somehow it was in New Zealand. It's around the whole planet on Twitter in like 10 minutes. Yeah, and, and that's exactly right. And what, what people would experience, though, is the, the darkening of the skies, um, you know, as the dust veil spread around the planet. Um, the dropping of temperature and all of the secondary consequences of it without necessarily knowing what the ultimate progenitor of the whole phenomena was. And the see, people who did see it are fucking dead. You got that right. The people who witnessed it are no longer around to testify as to what they saw. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and so we're, we're in this major paradigm shift that hasn't really sunk into, into mainstream thinking yet, which is that we live on a really extraordinarily dynamic planet. And the history of this planet and the history of civilization may be far more dynamic than, you know, mainstream academia and science and historians and so forth were, were, were accepting even a generation ago. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. How, how long do you think it's going to take before they start catching up? Well, I think what it may actually take is another uh, Chelyabinsk type event, maybe right. a little bit larger I mean, what we saw on uh, what was it, the 13th of, or 15th of February, 2013, was very interesting. Another one of these bizarre coincidences. While we're sitting there looking at the closest asteroid flyby known in modern times, only 17,000 miles from the surface of the Earth, within you know, within the orbits of many of our geocentric satellites, at that same moment, we suddenly we have this say 50 to 75 foot object flying in over Siberia and exploding, causing enormous destruction to the city. Luckily, nobody was killed, but I think the, 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 the uh, injuries were estimated between 12 and 1,600. I don't remember the exact number. But had that object been a little bit bigger, or had it been a little denser, or it's angle Different angle, yeah, yeah. Different angle, yes. <clears throat> it could have penetrated much deeper into the atmosphere and you could have been looking at a few thousand casualties. So Um, can you help me understand something about that? How does it explode before it hits the ground or did it hit the ground? No, it didn't hit the ground. Have you ever jumped up? Super heated. Have you ever dove off a high dive and done a belly flop? Well, not high, a little, little diving board, a little diving and got a little belly flop. Yeah. Okay. 
that's what you're looking at. Yeah, the Earth's atmosphere is a fluid, just like water. Okay. And it's it's, comp- it's compressible, but if an object is moving fast enough, and and you know, I think the the Chelyabinsk object was moving uh, something along the line of thirty thousand miles per hour. Thirty thousand miles per hour translates into uh, almost ten miles per second. <laughs> so ten, in one second, one thousand and one, it's moved ten miles. Yeah. Now, Jesus. an object entering into the atmosphere that quick, the atmosphere doesn't really even have time to get out of the way. It just <laughs> piles up in front of it it's just like you going into that belly flop if you go in you know broadside boom you're going to feel the impact you know it's going to feel almost like you slammed into concrete oh, okay okay well, listen, it's the same concept this object flies into the earth's atmosphere it compresses the atmosphere in front of it very quickly you can figure if it's the atmosphere you know to the top of it the troposphere is no more than 10 miles so you know, the low, the greater density of the atmosphere is this lowest 10 miles. Well, it's going to traverse that atmosphere in one second, 10 miles of atmosphere in one second. So, again, the atmosphere doesn't have time to get out of the way. Right, so it right. just compresses in front of it. <clears throat> and it's like this object is literally slamming into a brick wall. So it really depends on mass and velocity and the angle of approach to whether it's going to make it to the Earth or explode above or where it's going to where it's yes. going to happen. Yes. Remember on the yes, mushroom it, episode, I could feel Buddy walking down the stairs? Yeah. I was talking about being under stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, well, that's... <laughs> okay, well, I could get off the track on that, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I'm actually just posted an article online about... It's called The Making of a Catastrophist. You guys might want to read it. I'm going back to my, you know, back to the 60s and things that happened then when I first began to become aware of some of these things. Well, we, I don't explicitly state in the article, um, but you can interpolate yourselves right. when I'm describing some of these um, experiences of, you know, looking into uh, huge river valleys with just tiny little rivers flowing in them and realizing, wait a second, that was once a huge river there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I remember one time I ate mushrooms and I was like, I was getting a glass of water and I was like sitting there and I, I had always like, I always got to run the water for a minute to, uh, before I can, uh, before I can put it in my glass and it's like, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want the stuff that's just been sitting in the pipe for a minute. And then I remember I went in there one time and I could just like, came to me. I was like, well, uh, that shit's just further down the pipe. What's the difference? (laughs) It's just further down. And ever since then, I don't bother. I just put it right under. There you go. A little aha moment on shrooms, eh? Hmm. You can have a lot of those. Okay. uh, I want to, I want to ask you something else. um, Sort of get off the topic before I forget um, about your platonic solids and your sacred geometry with those. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to talk about an experience I had. I'm not going to get into too much detail because people that have listened to the show a few times have heard, heard me talk about it before. But every time I see platonic solids, um, it kind of, uh, it resonates with me. It kind of skips my heart a little bit. I was, I was on, uh, I had a UFO sighting. I saw a strange object fly through the sky. I was in Israel in Tel Aviv on a rooftop hostel. And I saw a bunch of friends pointing at the sky and they were talking about this, uh, strange craft they saw. And, uh, they said it did this 90 degree turn and I ran over to them and I was pissed off cause I, I missed it. And I looked up at the sky and I said, please come back. 
please come back. I want to see you too. And I spotted it through the thin haze of clouds. And at the time I had no um, reference for platonic solids or sacred geometry, but all I could think of is it was like a 12 sided dice. Cause I used to play role playing games or it was a 20 sided mm-hmm. dice. Like Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Like that. Ooh, how come that's never come up before? <laughs> I don't know. It's not. Uh, it hasn't been my choice. I I talk about it. That's okay. Anyways, it was. Uh, it was. It was a, like. So it was like a dodecahedron, really, or an icosahedron. It's hard to tell because it was rotating around its axis, and mm-hmm. it was split in half, and the halves were rotating against themselves, and it just fly. It flew silently through the sky. No lights or anything like that. Just sort of reflecting moonlight. And uh, yeah, ever since then, I just every time I see a dodecahedron or an icosahedron, I can't say what. I mean, it just smacks of uh, yeah, like it was definitely a craft flying. But why? Why that shape? And you know, you could look at those posters that have like hundreds of UFO shapes on them, cigars mm-hmm. and discs, and not a lot of them have this uh, this shape. So, well, that's I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> what what? what? What time of year was it? It was in uh, late summer, early fall. Late summer. Yeah. Do you remember what year it was? 1990. 1990. Okay. Yeah, I was nine. Yeah. yeah I was traveling on Europe and, and the Middle East. And, and uh, you know, I saw it with multiple people. So it was, it was about four or five, five of us. Five of us at least saw the second time, and I missed the first sighting. So it was multiple sighting, multiple people. So pretty, pretty interesting. And I heard on a sightings program, the only other time I've heard about that shape is somebody, a woman who saw it in Israel as well. So I'm not saying it's, you know, like anything like ET or anything like that. It could have been, who knows, something natural, something black ops, but definitely interesting. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, I have... It's probably going to be too much for us to try to get into today. Um, you know, at some point, you know, to discuss this whole the alien thing, the extraterrestrial visitation thing. You know, based upon my research, I have an hypothesis that I'm kind of developing that it's that I think is an alternative to. Basically, I'll say this: I think it's a real phenomenon, but I don't think it's what anybody really yet thinks that it is. I think it's something completely outside of what I I've never seen anybody speculate along the lines of what, what I'm kind of, what I'm hypothesizing here. And so that's going to be something that I'm going to be trying to develop in, in this book uh, or a couple of books that I'm working on. Sweet. Um, yeah. Cause uh, you know, with this whole context, this whole perspective that comes with this study of all these different things we're talking about, uh-huh. you know, I, I get asked about it all the time. Right. And somewhere a couple of years ago, I was actually doing lunar research. And that's where I suddenly hit upon an alternative idea that just seems to have escaped all the commentators up to this point, all the speculators. And I'll just kind of leave it at that for now. Yeah, give yeah. People a hint that, that you know, the, the, the basic premise that I'm developing around that. Right. And, you know, in a nutshell, it's not what everybody thinks it is yeah no that's completely different yeah yeah something we can barely understand i'm sure so we'll have to get you back on when you have those when when those books come out and we'll have to we'll have to get into that then absolutely jump right into that so you talk about uh, in the in the in the DVD you talk a bit about numerology and and stuff oh, like that. Crazy um, stuff. Is there a lucky number? Or should I be like should I get a number tattooed on Nine. me? 
You probably should, but I wouldn't want to advise you what it is because I don't know you well enough. Um, 33? 33, that's a good one. Yeah, 33 is a good one. You know, what I would recommend is that you immerse yourself for, uh, you know, a few months into the study of numbers. And then at some point, you're going to find you really resonate with a number. Um, You know, for me, you know, there's a, a small set of numbers that I kind of have taken on as, you know, my own characteristic numbers. Um, you know, studies of Kabbalah and, and, and other, you know, hermetic traditions where, where numbers play an important role. Um, like, there, have you ever heard of gematria? Yeah. Where that's, that's the, the method of substituting numerical values for letters. Yeah. And, you know, before the advent of the Hindu-Arabic numeral system, uh, in the Semitic languages, the same symbols serve not only as letters of the alphabet, but the, their numbers as well. So, you know, when you look at the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, uh, Bet, Gibel, Daleth, Che, Vach, Zayn, Heth, Tet, Yud, etc., each of those letters represented a number, just like within the Greek, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, etc., each of those represented a number, right? So what that means is if you go into the text, the sacred text, whether they were, say, biblical or, or you know, a lot of the, the Greek writings, um, anything that was originally written in a Semitic language has the potential of being translated numerically as well as literally. And that's the whole basis of the gematria, which is a subdivision of Kabbalistic studies, which is basically looking at the numerical values of words and comparing those numerical values uh, mathematically and geometrically to look for correlations. So there's some really, really interesting stuff going mm. on there. Um, you know, if you, um, oh, I mean, I don't even know where to begin with some of it. Um, but there's, yeah, there's a lot of mathematical correlations there. You get these numbers. The numbers will relate directly. Many of the numbers relate directly to the derivative numbers from the geometry, the um, particularly the platonic solids that we were just talking about. Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, it, it, it seems to, you know, it exists on a level of complexity that makes it very difficult to think that it's there by right. something other than <laughs> intention. You yeah, know? yeah. And, and so what I basically try to point people in the direction of is, is the, uh, the, the perspective shift that, you know, what we're looking at when we take the Bible, for example, and, you know, scientists as a whole don't look at the Bible scientifically. And most of the people who study the Bible are coming at it from a theological perspective. And, you know, they look at it, you know, regretfully, they look at it as purely a literal phenomenon. They don't understand that it's actually symbolical, just like all of these ancient, you know, whether we're looking at the, the, the Vedic traditions or, you know, the Platonic traditions and the Neoplatonists and Pythagoreanism and, and oh, the list goes on you know, is that these writings are symbolical. They're meant to be taken on multiple levels at once. And the literal level is like the outer level, the outer shell. Like an onion. That, like an onion. And you peel that back, and then there's another layer of meat. You peel that back, and there's another layer of meat. And well, you, you cry can go, a little. <laughs> you cry a little bit <laughs> at, at the extreme awesomeness of the whole thing. Um, but, you know, you begin to see these bizarre correlations that, you know, um, 
I was just talking with somebody recently about the third chapter of Genesis. I don't know if you have have actually read or, or studied the Bible much. No. Um, well, it, you know, if you, you, a lot of people, you know, from from coming from our worldview, tend to think, well, you know, it's it's the um, you know the fundamentalists have a monopoly on the Bible and what it means and all of that. But really, when you begin to realize that it's a highly esoteric book. And, you know, when you begin to look at it, um, you know, without the without the, the bias of all of this dogma that we've been fed, you begin to realize that there's a whole nother meaning underlying the story. Like I happen to have it right in front of me at the moment. And I'll just a couple of verses here to, to show you what I mean. Yeah. Um, go to the third chapter of Genesis. The first verse, it says, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods. Now, you stop right there, and you go back, and you take those first chapters of Genesis, you go back to the original Hebrew, and the word for God, like in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and was the earth was about form and void, etc. That word was Elohim. Which That's was plural, plural, right? Plural. Aleph, Lamed, Chei, Yud, Mem. Yud, Mem coming at the end of a Hebrew word, implies that it's a plural word, just like we stick an S at the end of an English word, and we go from chair to chairs. So we've gone from singular to plural. Well, the yod mem at the end of a Hebrew word implies it's plural. So if we were going to you know, come with a more literal translation of it, we should say, in the beginning, the gods created the heaven and the earth. But we've been so indoctrinated into this monotheistic uh, dogma about the Bible that, that that's just glossed over. Nobody really ponders what the implications of that is. But now when we get to the third chapter, we see this, we, we begin to see the serpent says, you shall not surely die for God knows when you eat it, your eyes are going to be opened and you shall be as the gods. Wow. And right there we see the plural. So then it goes on to say that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Then we get to the seventh verse that says what happened next, and the eyes of them both were opened. Now, if you take this at face value, it seems like who's telling the truth here? The serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die, Instead, your eyes shall be opened. And then the, the, the biblical verses themselves says, the eyes of them both were opened. Mm. So then it goes on to say that they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And I find that an interesting uh, image, God walking in the garden. Wait a minute, are we talking about the power that created the entire universe that preexisted <laughs> the Big Bang? And he's there walking in the garden? I mean, when you begin to look at it and try to interpret it literally, it begins to make no sense. You have to look at it symbolically. So 
so then they, they, they freak out, they hide themselves. The Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, where art thou? Now, I'm, I should mention here that in the first two chapters, we have the creation of man by Allahim. Man created he, them, male and female, in the image of God, right? And we don't, we're not introduced to Yahweh until the third chapter. Now, Yahweh was the word in Hebrew that was translated as Lord. So it's like when you see Lord God, what you're actually reading in the Hebrew is Yahweh Elohim. In other words, almost like saying the God, Yehovah. You see, if we accept as a hypothetical, as a working hypothesis that we're actually talking about multiplicity, we're actually talking here about um, multiple gods and not necessarily monotheistic, but pantheistic, like other traditions, yeah. um, then we can begin to see this whole thing in a new light. So um, then it goes on to say that, you know, and God said, you know, who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, uh, um, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, uh, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. <laughs> And the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go. And then he goes on to put all these curses on everybody. I will, under the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception and sorrow shalt thou bring forth children. It goes on and on, all the, the bad things he's going to do to them. For what was the crime? Well, going back to the sixth verse, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes. And, it, and here's the key point, a tree to be desired to make one wise. Mm. Now, what's happening is they're being punished because they're desiring wisdom. So, you see, it, it's like it turns the whole thing on its head. And when you realize that the whole Gnostic tradition basically took this alternative interpretation, the Gnostic tradition that was basically driven underground by the third and fourth century after all of the ecumenical councils sat down to de decide what was politically correct and what was heresy. All of these alternate versions, alternate interpretations got driven underground. Yet, yet the, the, this fundamental alternative point of view is still there. So what's interesting then now, here's, we get to the 22nd verse, and here's what it says. And, the, and, and, and again, getting back to this idea of plurality, and here's the exact King James Version. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, placed at the east of the Garden of Eden, cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the tree way of the tree of life. So now he's been driven out of this paradisio garden to till the ground and suffer and sweat and die young. And of course, even then dying young meant 900 years. But you see, Within that whole context, you see, like, what does this mean? The, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become as one of us. Us. Who is us? You see, that's what I'm getting at. 
there's this implication of plurality right there in the King James, and it just nobody is really even considering what it means. Hmm. Um, but it, it goes on, you know. I mean, there's the, the 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 hints are scattered all throughout that there's this alternate interpretation. And of course, what happens when you go on to 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 chapter four? Um, you know, that's when Cain rises up and and kills Abel. Remember yeah. the story: Cain killing Abel. And then Jehovah comes and and says unto Cain, where's Abel, thy brother? He said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which has opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. So here we have this fundamental idea that we've seen in all kinds of primitive and ancient cultures, this idea of anointing the earth with sacrificial blood. Now, again, I'm going to suggest something here without actually going into this, that what really is being concealed here is an alchemical secret. And what we're seeing here is something that's, gosh, if, if you go to the website, I have a series of articles called Sangrial, okay. which gets into the symbolism of the Holy Grail and the idea of blood and blood sacrifices and the symbolism and ritual behind uh, the symbolism of the blood and what it means in the alchemical terms and what it means in the, um, in the, uh, in, in, like in mythical terms, like particularly the story of the Holy Grail. And if you read those, that series, there's like 10 chapters of it written there. Okay. In the context of what we've been talking about, I think you will have some hints of, of what some of this alternate meaning might be. Right. And of course, after Cain kills Abel, he's, you know, He's driven into exile. And what does he do? So it says, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And then what did he do? Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bare Enoch and he built a city. So now, obviously, from right there, it's not telling us that Adam and Eve were the first couple of progenitors of the entire human race. Right? Right. It, it, how can it be? I mean... <clears throat> Look, if, look, folks, if you're out there and you are subscribing to this fundamentalist biblical tradition, you can't have it both ways, right? Because it says right there, he's driven out, he goes to the land of Nod, and he mar gets married. Well, obviously, there were other people. So, you see, my point is, without getting into necessarily all the layers of meaning, all of this is symbolical. Right. You see, and, and we have to look at it that way. and. To make sense of the symbolism, we have to look in a broader context because it's basically one component of the same symbolism that we find dispersed through all of these sacred texts and sacred traditions from the world over. Mm. See, so it's like okay, yes, the Bible is a sacred text, but what we're what's come to us as the Bible is only like one part of it. The Bible is scattered all over the whole planet. It manifests as the Tao Te Ching. It manifests as the Buddhist. It manifests uh, as the Mahabharata, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's not just one revelatory download that has taken place. Right. There's been multiple revelatory downloads that have taken place to people whose consciousness is primed for that prophetic insight, that prophetic breakthrough. Mm. And that's where we get into the study of this symbolism, sacred geometry, and all of that, because 
by working with these symbols, working with the sacred geometry, and so on, what we're doing is we're preparing the ground of our consciousness for the download of revelation. <laughs> so Does that speak, make sense? Yeah, yeah. So speaking of make it, like evolution and the, the creation of man and that. So when you when you talked earlier on uh, tonight, you mentioned that term that you you use to identify the dogmatic or the actual paradigm of the physical evolution of the earth and the biological evolution of man. What was that term you said again? Um, you had called those two. You said that they paralleled each other. Um, you know, we yeah. talked. The geological talking about uniformitarianism. Yeah. Uniformitarianism. So, so can you, can you describe a little bit about the, dogma or where you would disagree with the mainstream view of evolution too, of, of, of human evolution. Like, is it, do, do we evolve from primates? Like they say, I have a hard time wrapping my head around that. Well, I admittedly I do too, but all I'll say is this. It's like, if we look at the, the older models, the older versions, you know, there was a, a linear progression from, primitive up to ever more sophisticated primate forms. The one that was usually uh, considered to precede modern humans was Neanderthal, right? Yeah. Well, you know, that that prevailed for quite a long time until it began to become apparent that for tens of thousands of years, modern humans coexisted in parallel with Neanderthals. And as older and older specimens of Neanderthal begin to be uncovered, you've got a couple of hundred thousand years of, of Neanderthal um, remains documented, and there appears to be really no evolutionary change at all. Right. The, er the earliest versions are interchangeable with the latest versions a couple hundred thousand years later. We yeah. don't see the the the, the the continuum of change between Neanderthals and modern humans. And then when you factor that in with the, with the idea that, that humans coexisted probably for 150,000 years with Neanderthals, it becomes very difficult to assume how did we evolve from them. And, you know, again, when you begin to look at the evolutionary record, what you see is, you know, in the evolutionary models, you know, two distinct species are endpoints of a continuum. And really, what you should be seeing is that the dominant number of species should be within the continuum and not just the endpoints. Yeah, yeah. But what we're seeing in, in distinct species is the endpoints of the process. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting at. So it seems like there's something missing there. It's because we used to be a sea mammal. <laughs> <laughs> like a dolphin? Or a sea slug. Yeah, sea yeah. slug. Yeah, a dolphin. I was looking at a picture of a dolphin the other day, and he could almost, they were kind of showing where its hind legs used to be and how it could have went either way. Could have been like a dog or showing like how it had the same sort of mechanics as a dog in some weird roundabout sort of way. Well, actually, in this series of articles on Sangreal, I devote several of the uh, several of the uh, episodes, if you will, or chapters or whatever, to the idea of exobiology. And my take at this point is that evolution is being driven from outside. And just as we have these rapid extinction events, we also have these rapid speciation events. Huh. And, that, and, and rather than being a long, incremental, gradualistic process, it appears that evolution is something that happens in spasms almost. You'll have a mass extinction event that clears out an old ecosystem or an existing ecosystem, vacates a lot of habitat introduces probably a whole bunch of new 
energy factors into the system. For example, if there's an impact on Earth and it destroys the ozone layer, well, then what's going to happen is galactic cosmic rays are going to be much more uh, able to penetrate and cause, you know, um, reactions, the creating excess radio carbon, beryllium 10, various things like this, introducing perhaps biological precursors into mm -hmm. the biosphere. I, I've pretty much gotten into uh, a pretty elaborate discussion of some of these ideas in that whole series that I just was talking to you about, the okay. Sangreal series that is online. So I would recommend going in and reading that entire series because a lot of these ideas are kind of addressed in there. And again, I don't have any, certainly don't have any final answer to this. It's really one of the great mysteries with a capital M. But I, from where I'm looking at it, it looks to me like the whole process is being driven from outside. Right. Do you mean outside, it's, like possibly the Earth going through some sort of maybe radioactive or something we don't even know about pocket in space and its and its travels, and that like triggers some sort of mutations? I, yeah, that could be that could be the case. Changes in in solar irradiation, changes in the galactic ray bombardment, the delivery of 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 material, um, biotic precursor materials from comets disintegrating. Um, which I think is a very powerful uh, possibility um, is because we now know that the comets are storehouses of organic material. Um, and so again, I get, I get into considerable detail on this and what I'm, the unifying theme of it is, is I'm using the symbolism of the Holy Grail to, to explore these, you know, uh, exobiological and exogenic concepts. The idea that, that evolution goes in leaps and jumps, that it's sort of like a quantum evolution, that there are periods of stasis interrupted by these short, rapid bursts of speciation, and they're tied in also with the, um, uh, with the extinction events. Um, you know, one of the, the things that I talk about briefly mm. in there is the Tunguska event of 1908. Yeah. Okay. This was probably a member of the Torrid stream. Uh, which is related to Comet Anki. Okay. Prob probably a giant comet that entered the solar system 20, 25,000 years ago, maybe uh -huh. 26,000 years ago, began to undergo a hierarchy of disintegrations. These disintegrations caused climate changes on Earth, which may have manifested in, in the, the last phase of the Great Ice Age. Um, and then at the end of the Ice Age, perhaps a number of uh, more macro scale. Uh, remnants of this stream encountered the Earth, triggered the global warming that that brackets the um, the Balling Alrod Younger Dryas transition, it's, as it's called, which is now dated at twelve thousand nine hundred and sixty years ago, or the Younger Dryas preboreal transition, it's dated eleven thousand six hundred years ago, in which there was two extreme cases of global warming. Um, and to put that in perspective, it's estimated that the that the global warming may have been between 10 and 15 degrees centigrade. And huh. compared to the modern global warming, you know, <laughs> the models of modern global or, warming. Or lack thereof. Lack thereof, yes, yes. Well, well, the climate has warmed in the last 150 years. Now, the question is, is how much of that is natural and how much of it is anthropogenic? I'm leaning towards the interpretation that the majority of it is is natural because for one thing it began in the mid 19th century the warming did yeah. you know during during the little ice age glaciers worldwide 
grew larger than they had been in 10,000 years. So the problem is, is too many of the, the, the models and the discussion about global warming now uses the end of the Little Ice Age as the baseline. Well, if the Little Ice Age was the, the, one of the coldest periods of three centuries in 10,000 years, what's that going to mean if you use that as the baseline to, to, against which to measure the modern warming? Yeah, yeah. You see, it, it's, gonna, it's not going to be realistic. But in any case, um, in, in, in uh, 1908, you had this uh, object come in, blow up over Siberia, and it didn't cause a mass extinction. It caused the complete decimation of over 800 square miles of old growth forest, right, which is close to 2,000 square kilometers, right? Now, one of the things in the aftermath of that was that, and, and this is research that's really only just come to light in the last 10 years, post-Cold uh, War, once we started getting access to uh, Russian uh, research that had been done on the aftermath, but one of the most intriguing things to me was the fact that there were whole new species in the area that had never been documented before. Hmm. Uh, there was accelerated tree growth and plant growth, in some cases orders of magnitude above the background normal. Um, there was a lot of weird things going on. I talk about some of that in the Sangreal articles. Okay. And I think that that is perhaps providing us with a model whereby we might be able to understand that the same events that could trigger a mass extinction are also introducing exotic cosmogenic material into the Earth's atmosphere that could be one of the main factors triggering these rapid speciation events. <laughs> now, did you see that we, new hole in Russia? Uh, I don't think it's oh, new. I think it just kind of made the headlines again, or if I don't know if they just finally got a picture of it or... Was that the sinkhole thing? Yeah. Yeah, I did I did see a picture of that, but I don't know what the latest is on what they're attributing that to. Global warming. Oh, of course. <laughs> well, you know, these days everything <laughs> is global warming. Right? Yeah. yeah. I don't care what it is, everything is global warming. Global climate change now, really. Well, yeah. the, the it went from global warming to climate change because in fifteen years the climate hasn't warmed. Yeah. <laughs> so all the old computer models were predicting, you know, that that we were basically going to be in apocalypse by now are essentially worthless. What's um, going to happen with that? Like, what, what's your feeling of, uh, are we going to finally break through this this farce and, and everybody going to realize that uh, this is just all a bunch of propaganda? Or what, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, you know, there, there's such a, a, a um, you know, there's so much vested interests now in the whole outcome of this that it's it's going to be tough but and you know um i follow the the whole debate and and it's really dismaying to hear the 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 aspersions that are cast against anyone who questions the dogma yeah you know and and you can you can watch like the the neoliberal and you know i call them environmentalists environmental fundamentalists <laughs> who basically believe you know that you know, humans are destroying the earth. And of course, they have no context in really in which to make that claim because they, they don't understand any of the stuff that we've been talking about, you know, and they have no really understanding of how truly robust the earth is in responding to these extreme, I mean, extreme forces that have played out. You know, when I um, talk about, you know, a um, like the, you know, one of the things that, 
we're hearing now is, oh, we're in the midst of the sixth great mass extinction. Yeah. Right? Have you heard that? Yeah. Yeah. The sixth great mass extinction. And it's comparable to one of the great five. Right? Well, you know, you've got these five extinctions, you know, which includes the Permian-Triassic and the Late Devonian and the, the um, of course, the most famous being the Cretaceous tertiary. Right? That dinosaurs. Well, the dinosaurs. Now, of, in the Great Five, the KT boundary extinction comes like right in the middle in terms of species loss, habitat destruction, the assumptions of the energies involved comes right in the middle, right? I think I said this on, on the Joe Rogan show, and it, and it bears repeating. Um, you know, at the peak of the Cold War, or even about right now, if you look at all of the nuclear weapons on Earth, right, the total megatonnage is about 10,000 megatons, right? That means 10,000 10, megatons. A megaton is a million tons of TNT. Mm -hmm. That's one megaton, a million tons. The bomb that destroyed Hiroshima was about 10 kilotons, or about 10,000 tons of TNT. So we're talking about 10,000 megatons. Now, no one, I don't think, would try to argue that if we had an all-out nuclear war, right. where we blew off every single nuclear weapon in the global arsenal, that it would not constitute the most extreme environmental catastrophe in history. Right. In terms of, you know, the, 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 you know we've heard of the, the um, nuclear winter. Those, those scenarios are plausible. I mean, detonating that much explosive energy in the atmosphere is going to cause fires. Not only the local d destruction from the, from the blast wave itself, but then all the secondary consequences. Let's take radiation out of the equation just for the moment yeah, no, yeah. the fires the dust the the the, the explosions and everything just the kinetic think, catastrophe yeah egg, the kinetic catastrophe exactly i don't think anyone would argue that um that wouldn't that that's wouldn't be the worst environmental disaster in in recent history right right um probably would not cause the extinction of the human race but it Possibly could. It would certainly destroy huge amounts of habitat, you know, trigger forest fires on an extreme scale. Uh, the nuclear winter uh, coming on would basically cause multi-year multi collapse of agriculture. It would, be, it would be a very unpleasant experience, okay? Now, we, we go and we're saying that what's going on out there now, that we're in the midst of the sixth great mass extinction comparable to the great five so now if we go back and we look at the kt boundary we know that there was at least one impact of a six mile in diameter asteroid probably more it created a crater in the yucatan peninsula it's about 200 miles across mm -hmm. right there's evidence now that there was actually a clustered bombardment around the kt boundary okay there you know I, you can look online too. look up the crater shiva which is being uh studied by scientists, geologists from India. Mm -hmm. And it looks like to be the same age as the, the, the Chicxulub crater in the Yucatan. What it's appearing, oh. if, that, if that turns out to be uh, a viable crater, it means that essentially the Earth got a, a double whammy, a two-fisted, uh, you know, uh, beatdown at the end of the KT. <laughs> well, think about this. The, the, the asteroid that came in and created that crater in the Yucatan, six miles in diameter, just based on physics, you can estimate what its 
equivalent megatonnage would be. Okay. And it's and it's in excess of a hundred million megatons. Okay. One hundred million megatons. Now you put that into uh, a calculator. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six. Hundred million divided by ten thousand, and it would be the same equivalent of taking the entire nuclear arsenal ten thousand times over. <laughs> now, all of you look at the studies. The studies in 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 uh, biomass uh, incineration suggest that the amount of biomass, and this is based on studies of the of the soot layer at the KT boundary, that the biomass incineration. Was a, was a mass equivalent to the entire biomass on Earth today. The skies would have been darkened, almost pitch dark, for years at a time. The, the, there would have been seismic events, even to the point of perhaps every fault line on Earth collapsing. There would have been volcanic, and, and probably a big part of the, this enormous volcanic eruption that created the Deccan Traps in India may have been a response to those impacts. Then that, in turn, discharges copious amounts of sulfuric acid into the atmosphere, even to the point where some estimations are that there would have been rainfall with the pH of battery acid. Now, you put all that together, there is one of the six great mass extinctions. And the last time I looked out my window, it didn't look anything like that going on out there. So when I hear somebody saying, oh, we're in the midst of the sixth great mass extinction, I go, on what basis are you, you know, how can you compare what we're seeing now to something like a KT boundary event? Right. Give me a break, okay? <laughs> that's not to say, that's not to say, of course, that we shouldn't protect species, that we shouldn't protect diversity and habitat. And the environment, yeah. yeah. And the environment, of course. Yeah, if we've got the power to, then it should be our, in our, you know, absolutely. mission statement. I totally agree, 120% agree with that. But we have to approach it realistically. And what I think we're seeing now is this effort on the part of these neo-Luddite factions that basically want to shut down industrial civilization in their, you know, their goal of, quote-unquote, saving the earth. Well, see, that's why I'm thinking it's probably going to take another uh, Chelyabinsk event in the next few years a little bit bigger, maybe a half a million casualties for people to wake up and realize, hey, you know what? There's much bigger game afoot. Right. Maybe, maybe what we're doing to the planet isn't as horrible as we have imagined it. And if we really look at geological history and, and paleontological history, and we begin to appreciate this extreme severity of some of these events, the catastrophic events that have occurred over and over and over again in the history of the planet, we've got to admit that really the planet is quite more robust. Nature is quite robust in its ability to recover from these things. And if we look at the equation, what really may be the, the fragile uh, component, the fragile variable in the equation isn't so much the, the planet itself, it's this delicate fragile human civilization that we've created right right and maybe we should putting billion billions of dollars into into mm -hmm. asteroid research and and uh, how to how to take care of one of those if it comes instead of fighting over uh carbon footprint and all that kind of stuff yeah and, and you got to realize you know we're talking about now carbon dioxide in the atmosphere atmosphere approaching 400 parts per million 
that's not a lot of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And and studies um, of carbon concentrations in the atmosphere throughout the history of the planet show that for most of the time, it's been way higher than now. Some of those times have been some of the most uh, biologically prolific times in the history of the planet, that when the ice ages came on, it seemed like um, carbon dioxide levels plummeted. And what we're actually in now, see, if once you start dropping below 250 parts per million. No good for the plants. No good for the plants. Well, different plants start shutting down. Once you've dropped down to about 150 parts per million, photosynthesis stops. Really, what it is, is carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere right now are some of the lowest they've ever been in the history of the planet. And in fact, they're sort of almost teetering on the minimal amount required to, you know, stimulate photosynthesis. And, and what happens is each time a carbon dioxide molecule is taken up in the process of photosynthesis. Um, one carbon molecule, one ax, one carbon atom, and one oxygen atom are incorporated by the plant. But then the second oxygen atom is released into the atmosphere. So in effect, what's happening is we're releasing a little bit of the carbon dioxide that's locked up in the lithosphere. And as a result, one of the secondary consequences of that is more oxygen is being released into the atmosphere, <laughs> which could generally be thought of as a as a good thing. You know, you've heard of people, you know, going and, and breathing the oxygen, oxygen bars. Exactly. It's yeah. a war on trees. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not, my, I don't get my panties in a wad over um, carbon dioxide. No, we need to, that's good. We're regrowing the rainforest. That's the plan. They got mad for chopping us down. Now we're trying to regrow them and we're still dicks. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, listen. Um, you know, I don't have them in front of me, but I've got in my, my files and stuff, I've got a bunch of studies done where they go back to the 60s and 70s, where they're making projections of forest inventories, like in the 90s, around the turn of the century and so on, a generation into the future. And this was before we had actual real-time satellite surveys of the actual number of hectares of forests, okay? So... When you look at once we had the satellite surveys in hand, it was realized that the projections were 25 to 30 percent too low. In other words, the forests have been regenerating and regrowing way faster than anybody was predicting 50 years ago that they would. And, and one of the questions is, is what's driving this fast? Like the Sahel in, in the southern Sahara Desert. They're trying they, to get the fuck out of here before the next rock comes here. Well, that might be it. But, you know, actually, I was saying the Sahel in Southern Sahara is is actually greening. It's There's places there now where, you know, they're, they're saying, hey, we're seeing plant life growing for the first time in living memory. What's causing that? Well, it's not unlikely that at least some of it is being caused by carbon dioxide enrichment to the atmosphere. And, you know, there's been hundreds of studies done on the, uh, the effects of carbon dioxide enrichment on plants. And in almost all cases, what you have is enhanced plant growth. Um, you know, there's been studies done showing, uh, you know, taking uh, current concentrations of carbon dioxide in an enclosed controlled environment, and then to say doubling or tripling the amount of carbon dioxide, right? So if you take like, for example, a fruit tree, uh, grow it under ambient CO2 conditions, um, 
in a controlled environment, you know, between 350 and 400 parts per million. Then right next to that, you have the same kind of fruit tree come from the same seedlings and so forth that's doubled the CO2 concentration. What you end up with is 80% more growth, wow. probably 80% more roots uh, that can reach deeper into the earth. You also have greater fruit, more succulent fruit, more nutritious fruit, because the plant it's plant food. Carbon dioxide is what drives plant growth. <clears throat> and commercial greenhouses typically will run their CO2 uh, concentrations up to a thousand to twelve hundred parts per million because it it stimulates plant growth. Plants love CO2. Better write that one down. <laughs> yeah. I got, I got a question that's a little bit off off topic for you, but I, but I do want to ask it. And we've been we've been thinking about having a show on this. But have you ever heard of the abiotic oil theory? Like, like uh, apparently there's Russian scientists looking at the fact that oil is actually renewable. And yeah, that, uh, that Earth might that, that that the hydrocarbon deposits may actually be endogenic. Yeah, um, it may be primordial to the earth itself. Yes. And I find that a very interesting idea and it's plausible too, because if the planet, uh, we know for a fact that many meteorites are extremely rich in hydrocarbons huh. and, and which is probably indicative of that some of the primitive or primordial matter of the solar system was also rich in hydrocarbons, the very material that could have aggregated to form the earth in the first place. Huh. So uh, to me, I find that idea completely plausible. Um, I'm not embracing it because, you know, I'm waiting to see more evidence. Right. I, I looked into some of these studies about a decade ago. It was um, Thomas J. Gould, I think, did a lot of work on, on the abiogenic origin of, of the hydrocarbon deposits. Hmm. And this, to me, is an extremely interesting possibility. I, you know, I mean, when you, when you start looking at coal deposits, you know, there you get into some, you know, uh, rather strange phenomena going on because you know you have coal deposits that are you know hundreds of yards thick well depending on the quality of the coal like if it's a high quality uh anthracite coal you've got a compaction ratio of you know several hundred times you know in other words if you take a layer of peat that's 10 feet thick it required a layer of plants accumulated that would be roughly 10 times right the thickness right and then you go into some of the low-grade coals and in turn require you know a, a compaction ratio of 10 to 1. By the time you get to the high-grade coals, you're looking at, you know, to create a like a coal seam that's, you know, several hundred feet thick, you're talking about accumulating a, a half a mile of plant material. Which, that's from you know, when the crust displaced and it whipped around real quick and it just 
fucking turned us all into a little slurry <laughs> and we piled so, up in the corner. Clearly, I think if if not, if you're going to try to come up with an explanation for that, you have to you have to turn to something catastrophic because under normal circumstances, plants fall to the you know trees die, they fall over, they rot, they become part of the soil. They don't form hydrocarbon deposits. Right. So 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 here. I think we're left with two things. We're, we're left with either some kind of catastrophic event that can create enormous accumulations of, of plant material and then rapidly bury them, or we're looking at the abiotic phenomena or some combination of both. Um, yeah, check out the work of Thomas J. Gold. Yeah, yeah, the guy, I think, who, who um, first you know, really did a lot of work into the abiotic uh, genesis of oil and other hydrocarbons. So does the number uh, does the number forty two come up anywhere in uh, in any of your your geometry? Forty two, forty two, not off the top of my head. Obviously, forty. You know, forty days and forty nights. You know, forty days in the desert, etc. Um, forty two, not off the top of my head. Hmm. I can, you can get back to me. I bet you I'll find something. Why? Why'd you ask that? Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, oh, baby. Yeah, yeah. It's the answer to the universe. Oh, yeah, and everything. <laughs> oh, 42, that's yeah. right. Yeah. I, I remember that now, 42. Yeah. So I, I do... Right. Yeah, okay, go on. No, I, I have a, another question I, I don't want to uh, to miss out on here. We're having a, a show on this coming up here. Uh, talking about sacred geometry and platonic solids and all this. Have you ever... Oh, this is probably... I, I probably know the answer. It's going to come out in your new book, but... Uh, have you ever researched... Uh, the symbolism and sacred geometry in crop circles at all? A little, th- bit. a little bit. A little, a little bit. I not I, in my sacred geometry. One of my sacred geometry lectures. I have a couple of examples, but right. you know, that's again one of those phenomena that you know it's so complex. Yeah, it, yeah. And God, I, again, I wish I had more time. You know, I, I need to. You know, I need to live to be eight or nine hundred. You know, like our uh, biblical ancestors. <laughs> We're on the wrong or, side of the equinox for that. I think I think you're right. I think we're on the wrong side of the equinox. But hey, you never know what what we may uncover in the next couple of years. Because I'm probably a little older than you guys, so you know. You just you need some getting, nanobots. Yeah. When you hit a half a century, you start going, hmm. You know what? That that first half century is just zipped on by. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I, I'm not nearly where I was supposed to be by now. <laughs> you know, I'm supposed to be living on my own island. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Are you Are you and uh, Graham Hancock going to be stopping anywhere to lecture at all on your on your little road trip? No. Uh, now he's ending up in Minneapolis. And the I Paradigm think. Symposium, I would hope. Is that you, what's happening in I, Minneapolis? Yeah, I think if it's at the uh, beginning of October. Well, then I guess that would probably be it. Yeah, yeah, we're going to attend that. So it's, uh, we're really looking forward to that. It's a great, well, great symposium. Well, if I'm there, see, I wasn't sure what was happening, but I think now that I'm going to try to get a couple of extra days so I can also attend that. Yeah. Well. And and oh. and you should probably bring some, some material because uh, oh, you, yeah. know, you never know what can happen at a conference like that if somebody bails. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I will be in, I will be in Washington. Oh, oh, that kind of material. I got you. I got you. Okay. <laughs> I, I understand, though, that it can be somewhat risky crossing the Washington-Idaho border, from what I've heard. We don't have no borders in Canada, so. 
Yeah. We're right next to BC too. Yeah. Listen, I love it where you guys live. I, you know, it's one of my favorite places in the world. Wow. And I was hoping that I would get up there this summer, but I'm going to actually propose to Graham that we need to do a trip back to Canada next summer, uh, to the, to the BC, you know, I, I, uh, yeah, there's, there's so much evidence up there that it's amazing. And <clears throat> the thing we were talking about earlier with the, the erratic strain, the big rock and stuff, I've, I've done research on site, field research there, but basically it's preliminary stuff because I believe that being able to solve the mystery of what those rocks are doing out on the prairie is a big part of figuring out what happened 12,000 years ago. Hmm. So I definitely want to get back to that area. Is there a place for synchronicities in uh, in sacred geometry? Oh yeah, clear. Well, I mean, everything is kind of a synchronicity in a sense. I mean, when you start looking, that's at what Grab says of, too. <laughs> who says that? <laughs> Me. He says oh. I say that. We have a little thing on synchronicities here where we talk about them, and Darren rates them quite harshly. Well, you know, the, to me, the synchronicity is, is when you start looking at the forms and patterns of sacred geometry, and then you look at the accompany the numbers that that are generated from that, then you begin to realize that those numbers are imprinted on just a whole array of different kinds of phenomena. Um, like 33. 33, sure. Or like after our little discussion of, of the biblical uh, story of the serpent and so on, it, here, here's kind of a synchronicity. Um, now, of course, a Kabbalist who studies Gematria would say, well, this is not a synchronicity in the sense of a coincidence because this is an intentional connection here um, that actually reveals, uh, you know, insight into into this symbolism. But when you look at the, uh, we talked about the serpent, you know, right? Well, yeah. go back to the original Hebrew of the serpent. The spelling was uh, in Hebrew was Nahash Nun Hachin, spelled just simple three letters Nun Hachin. Nun uh, was fifty, had the value of fifty within the numerical scheme, and this is historic, going back you know, hundreds of years before the Hindu-Arabic numeral system, going back 2,000 years ago when these symbols were being used as numbers, Nun was 50, Chet, 8, and Sheen was 300. Well, add those up and you get 358, right? Yeah. Well, 3, 5, and 8 are the three numbers that establishes the Fibonacci sequence, right? Ah. 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, 34, 55, 89, 144, etc. Okay. Right? And this is an interesting when you begin to look at it, because one of the things we do in sacred geometry is we draw the the golden spiral, which we draw based on the three, five, and eight. We'll start out with a grid. Yeah. We'll do a radius of three, a radius of five, a radius of eight, and we create this golden spiral. Yeah. So I find that somewhat of a synchronicity, the fact that the number for the serpent happens to be 358. Well, then when you get later on into uh, – you know, some of the, 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 the Hebrew prophets where they're talking about, um, you know, things to come. One of the things we find is like um, uh, prophets referring to, to Shiloh, one of the words, one of the names Shiloh, when Shiloh comes. And if you translate that, according to Gematria, you, you get the phrase, um, if I can recall the phrase, um, the, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, yeah. and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now, until Shiloh comes, if you take that phrase 
translated according to Gematria, you see that it equals 358, the same as the number of the serpent. Mm. Well, then you go further, and then you find references to Messiah. Messiah is spelled Mem, Sheet, Mem, Sheen, Yot. Wait, let me back up. Mem, Sheen, Yod, Het. Well, same thing. Mem is 40, Sheen is 300, Yod is 10, Het is 8. Add those up, and what do you get for the, the numerical value for the Messiah? 358, the same as the serpent. The serpent that came in told Eve that, that she would not surely die, but her eyes would be opened and she'd become like the gods. And then the serpent who was cursed and punished by Yahweh for revealing this knowledge to Eve, that this serpent has the same number as the word Messiah, I find to be a very intriguing synchronicity. And possibly, possibly a little glimpse into the hidden interpretation of the symbolism that's in the Bible. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Any personal ones at all? Personal ones? Well, um, you know, I've kind of played around with a various English Gematria systems and have come up with one that I find rather interesting, um, which basically it's it's derived, it's based on the, the, the Hebrew and the Greek. The he, in the Hebrew alphabet, there's 22 letters. In the Greek, there's 24. And in the English, there's 26. But what I did was I found that there are certain anchor points. Like in the Hebrew, the Yud has the value of 10, which corresponds to the Yota in the Greek, which is also 10. Hmm. So what I did was I made the letter I equal to 10. But right. other than that, it's a dentary system exactly the same. And once you do that, you know, A is 1, B is 2. Right. When you get to, you know, um, L, M, N, O, P, Q, you're going up by tens, and then you go by hundreds. And that's okay, how okay. Right? Well, now you can do that. Um, take the word light, L-I-G-H-T. Okay. If you have, add up those letters, you find out that it equals 365. Take the word time, add up those letters, 365. <laughs> so you, you, get, you get these, which to me are you know, oh, yeah. coincidences, coincidences, but perhaps suggesting that there's some underlying strata of meaning or reality, even to things as mundane as our letters of our alphabet. Because in ancient times, the alphabet was considered to be a sacred thing. It was the province of the priests and the seers and the prophets. Right. You know, now it's just like everything else. Everything yeah. else has been secularized and, and you know, we have this reductionist attitude towards things, and and we don't look at you know just the the mundane routine elements of our of our day to day life as being sacred or symbolical. But that's how ancient peoples looked at it. So I have many examples like that that I've played with using an English gematria system. There's a couple other systems out there, but I found that uh, the one that I've played with seems to yield a number of interesting correlations. What is God? There, well, well, you could add it. Let's see. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. So G would be seven. O would be 70, right? And D would be four. So what you have to do, though, is... 18, to, one plus eight is nine. What? So no, Cameron, Cameron just sent me a little note saying, bring up Marty Leeds' work on Gematria, and that's a good point. He's done a lot of things. He's gone farther with it, I think, than I have. Um, at one point I was probably the leading guy in the world, but wow, maybe, I don't know maybe. where you find the time, man. You're like an expert in everything. No, not yet. <laughs> I'm working on, you know, 
by perhaps you know sometime next week. I'll, <laughs> I'll know everything. No, Marty Leeds has done some really incredible work with Gematria, and uh, he's taken it to levels that I that I haven't gone yet. So I'm actually very much looking forward to delving into his work. Um, so I, I would you know uh, suggest looking at what he's come up with, and then of course Scott Onstott's work. Um, Secrets in Plain Sight is extremely interesting as far as looking at this whole underlying matrix of synchronicity linking together words and numbers and geography and sacred sites and, and mm. symbolism and so on. Mm. Um, I, I'm not quite sure what to make of, of his work yet, but I mean, kind of speaks for itself. I mean, it, the, the, the links are there. You know, you could, I've heard people say, well, oh, you guys, you're, you're just playing with numbers. Well, yes, but again, that's kind of this this attitude of this reductionist attitude that that basically deprives these things of any kind of deeper meaning. And of course, my response is that well, if you look at the you know the the traditions from from uh, sacred geometry, you know you find things you find sentiments like this. Johannes Kepler said geometry existed before the creation. It is co-eternal with the mind of God. Geometry provided God wow. with a model for the creation. It's like math See? in general is that like that, Kepler? right? It's Holy like the shit. one constant yeah. in the universe that never fucking, it doesn't matter what where you are, one plus one is always going to equal two. Mm -hmm. St. Augustine said, the divine wisdom is reflected in the numbers impressed on all things. And he also said the construction of the physical and moral world alike is based on eternal numbers. Um, yeah, I mean, you can go on. There's, there are traditions about the sacred nature of numbers. And um, yeah, one of the early books I read by a, a Kabbalistic author named Seferia way back, probably 40 years ago, he, there was a quote in there which, which I extracted and really inspired me to go deeper into it. He said, if we steadily regard the geometry of nature in the same patient and sincere manner as did Hipparchus, Ptolemy, Kepler, Tycho, Newton, Kelvin, and others, we shall probably come to the conclusion that number, as expressed in geometrical relations, is the most intimate expression of the soul of things. Wow. Great quote. Yeah. Wow. Who, who is that again? That was a, a, an author, and I don't know if his work is still available. His name, he, he, he uh, went by the pseudonym of Seferio, and he wrote a lot of books on Kabbalah in the early 20th century. Okay. So that he was very much immersed in Pythagoreanism. You know, I mentioned Le Corbusier earlier, um, you know, who incorporated the golden uh, section or divine proportion into his modular system of architectural design. Yeah. He said this. Behind the wall, the gods play. They play with numbers of which the universe is made up. So whenever somebody says to me, hey, you guys, you're just playing with numbers. <clears throat> I say, yes, we are. And so did God. <laughs> it, it's funny because I, I always thought of sacred geometry of being a little bit uh, less tangible than, than you make it seem. When I watched your movie, it, it was really, really uh just straightforward and amazing the way you put all the shapes and the numbers together and correlated everything i mean it really is uh i, I we've wanted to do a show on this for a while and i couldn't have wanted uh, i couldn't have asked for a better guest to have on to talk about it 
Oh, well, thank you. And, um, you know, Cameron's working on a, an upgraded version of it. Hopefully he'll have it soon where we've cleaned up some of the mistakes that's, that uh, crept in. Uh, you know, when you're, we were trying to put that together in a hurry to get it out. So, you know, there was a few uh, typos that went in, some images that we've added images and graphs and stuff to enhance it. And it's just the, the new version will be have much greater continuity to it. Um, so hopefully that will be ready uh, soon. And, you know, part of it is, you know, just trying to work on a really low budget. You know, that's been part of our holdup. You know, we're doing this, all this stuff on a shoestring. Right. Um, it didn't, it didn't and, look like it. it looked very professional. I mean, it looked like you guys well, have put a lot into it. Can't, well, Cameron did a really good job. I mean, we, we went and we, we filmed the, the studio session of it, oh, a number of years ago. And then, um, you know, Cameron basically did all of the, 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 what you see in the final. He took all my material, my images and stuff. And then, um, you know, we've been working on, like I said, this upgraded version, which hopefully will be soon. But, you know, again, we're and, and you know, I was um, bankrolling a lot of this. I mean, I used to do three, <laughs> three expeditions a year minimum, yeah, yeah. doing research because um, I had a pretty my business was profitable. I was prospering, you know, through the through the 90s and the 2000s. Then when the um, when the recession hit, uh, the bottom fell out of my business. I was, you know, earning a pretty good living. I was able to afford to take like I say, three or four times a year, take two weeks off and go out in the field and do research. Yeah. Um, you know, I, we had 15 people working for us in the company and then we went down to two. Wow. So that was a drastic drop in my income. And so, you know, it, the timing was just, you know, couldn't have been worse. Um, but now things are picking up again. Um, you know, my, my business has improved. So I'm actually got, slightly more income now than it takes me to live on and it's looking good the biggest obstacle i'm running into now is that you know for example we're we're building a small house right now that's that's pretty cool little building um nearby where i live but we got another uh project ready to go in the city of atlanta and we we're going on two months now trying to get building permit from the bureaucrats downtown and it's just jumping through these ridiculous hoops and you know, a generation ago, I could go in and get a building permit for a project. It might take me two or three hours. <laughs> We're now for the same project, it, literally, and I'm not exaggerating. It might take me two or three months, and it's just gotten to the point of of absurdity, really. That that you've got to go through so many hoops to just be able to get out there and do something on your own property. Yeah, but <clears throat> that's you know a big part of what we're running into. You know, I'm very much a free market libertarian type. I believe in small businesses. I believe in the entrepreneurial spirit. And, you know, what we've got now is corporatism. We've got, you know, just political cronyism. You know, we've got rampant bureaucracy and completely gotten away, at least here in America, I think, yeah. from what, you know, what the original idea was supposed to be. Yeah. And by God, we need we need to have a restoration of this idea that you know, hey, you want to talk about democracy? Don't talk about Washington D.C. because what's going on there is not democracy. What what happens in the town hall down the street? That's democracy, where you can go, yeah. you can directly confront people that are making policies that affect your life. But you know what's going on in Washington? Those clowns up there are insulated by multiple layers from from any actual input from from real people out here in real America. 
you know, and it's just, you know, I'm old enough now where I've just watched this progressive deterioration and politicization of everything. Yeah. You know, and, and this, you know, this whole discussion we're having about carbon dioxide is just not what that is, is a big smoke screen to try to politicize the entire spectrum of energy production, distribution and consumption, which will basically grant unto a small group of political corporate elites total control of our economy and couple that in with with you know Obamacare that they're trying to force down our throats, which I won't even get into that, but it's got already, I mean, I don't know if you've heard about the VA scandal here, but but basically the VA scandal where you know soldiers that are you know constantly being feted as as national heroes can't even get an appointment to see a doctor for months within the VA system. And you know, you want to talk about Obamacare, what you want need to do is take the VA scandal and multiply that by perhaps a thousand and you'll start understanding what Obamacare is going to be. Wow. And you know, it's going to be very much about stifling alternative uh, healing modalities wow. that are out there. That's been going on by the FDA now in this country for decades. Um, anytime any uh, alternative cancer therapy uh, starts showing promise, what happens? The FDA moves in and shuts it down. I, I myself was actually seeing a doctor a doctor from India uh, back uh, about eight, nine years ago that was having extraordinary success treating terminally ill patients with cancer who had been given up by mainstream medicine. And the FDA came in and shut him down wow. and revoked his license. And dozens of people showed up at his court trial wow. to test testify that they wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for his protocols. And they weren't even allowed to testify. Oh, my God. So what was he doing? What was he? What was the oh. protocols? He was using a, um, what's it called again? It's a derivative. Uh, uh, he was using a DMS, DMSO, which is, which is a natural byproduct of the wood industry. And what it is, it's, a, it's a, an extremely uh, effective solvent that also has the ability to penetrate the cellular wall. And it also has this affinity for binding with chemotherapy drugs. So what he was discovering, and, there, and his research has been, confirmed by others, and I, yeah, I'm not an expert on it. At the time this happened, I looked into it, but again, this has been almost 10 years. But essentially, it bonds with a lot of the chemotherapy chemicals that they're using. And so by having a more effective delivery, delivery system, the DMSO seems to target cancerous cells for whatever reason. Huh. So what, what this guy, his name was uh, Dr. Shant, I've forgotten now. Again, it'll come to me in a second. But but what he was doing was discovering that he could reduce the amount of chemotherapy drugs to like literally 10% of the normal dosage oh, that's and, actually, and, and actually get it to be more effective. Yeah. Huh. And, uh, oh, you know, he's just one in a long, long list going back to people like Wilhelm Reich and Ruth Drown and others who basically had the establishment come in, Harold Hoxie, you know, the, the guy who was using these herbal formulas. There's a, a book that people should read called When Healing Becomes a Crime. <laughs> and, and it basically documents, uh, there's other books too, The War on Medical Freedom. These are the things people need to read and become aware of to realize, because most people don't realize the role that the government has played in suppressing healthcare in this country, of destroying healthcare in this country, then protect, presenting itself as the solution to the problem that it created. Right. But that, that's pretty much standard operating procedure in the political circles these days. So do you think that the U.S. is going to collapse before it gets better? Is it going to have to go through a 
catastrophe similar to the i the, i hope not i hope not you know i i go back and forth i go from yeah, pessimism yeah. to optimism because yeah. i talk to young millennials yeah. and people who seem to really get it but then you know at, all, at the same time i look at the entrenched powers and everything my god they've you know they've pretty much got a monopoly on power right now and you know we're seeing the militarization of american police and of course hope hopefully you know here's Look what Colorado and Washington have done. That that could be because for what one of the things that has really brought this country into chaos is this the drug war. The drug war, yes, yeah. which is ridiculous from the from the get go. You know, it was there was never any legitimate premises upon which the drug war was based in the first place. And you know, it's not to say you advocate any kind of drug use, but you know, it's just that. Every dimension in which you look at it, the drug war makes it worse. You know, it's like, you know, it's like if, if, if the only tool you've got is a hammer, everything you're going to try to fix looks like a nail. Yeah. Right? Well, it's like, to me, the drug problem in this country is a psychological problem, a spiritual problem. You know, it's a moral problem. It's not a problem for the, for the criminal justice system. You see, and, and all they're doing is taking something that would be a relatively minor social problem, criminalizing it and turning it into a major social problem. And, you know, there's all of the talk now going on and on, particularly amongst conservative circles, about the whole immigration problem. Well, you know, a big part of what the immigration problem is being driven by is the violence in Mexico caused by the drug war down there, which was basically, you know, the, the Mexican government uh, collaborating with the DEA and other, you know, the American government who basically uh, pressured the Mexican government into joining it in the drug war, you know. And then, it, and then as a consequence, you've now got all of this um, chaos and violence, which is, you know, disrupting Mexican society, disrupting their economy, causing, you know, an influx of immigrants. And, you know, Again, it's it's uh, we have to look at the hand of politics in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. And, and and now they're they've come. The, the latest abomination is Common Core, which is oh, basically yeah. trying to standardize the curriculum across the the educational spectrum in the whole country. So basically, now you've got a centralized production line of employees. Production line of employees. You've got a one-size-fits-all educational system basically being dictated by the federal government. It, it's, you know, it's what's gonna, what Common Core, if implemented, is basically going to put the 800-pound gorilla of the federal government in every classroom in America. Yeah. And, and what's gonna, what we're going to lose, what's going to go out the window is experimentation, innovation, um, yeah, all of that. So, so mm. yeah, I mean, what we, what we really need is a, is a new rebirth of, of freedom. And the recognition that, hey, you know what, we can do, we can run our lives way better than a bunch of bureaucrats in Washington. And I think that there's a great connection there because what, we're, what we learn from sacred geometry is, is the study of proportionality. And the uh -oh. I don't know. Is it still going? Is there? Oh. Booming and Washington's booming and 
crime has gone down. Cops are able to focus on real crime. We're going to see that the benefits far outweigh the the detriments of you know decriminalization, and more and more states will start doing that. Yeah. Because for one thing, you know, you say the drug war lumps all the drugs together. You know, so pot and the psychedelics, which can have a very positive medicinal use, are being lumped in with crack cocaine and methamphetamines, which is stupid, which yeah. is ridiculous. And, you know, I've said to people, you know, when you look at, at, at all of these, this weird shit that's going down, the, the, the mass killings and the, the, the serial killings and the, you know, the mass shootings, almost to a person, every one of these characters that's been involved in these mass shootings has been on legally govern, legal government approved psychiatric drugs. Yeah. In almost every case. Yeah. You know, so come on, you know, we're going to throw people in prison for marijuana when, when. Prescription drugs are killing a couple of hundred thousand people every year, and they're actually being pushed on us by the government itself. Yeah. That makes sense. You know, and, and, and as far as some of the psych, psychological afflictions that, that plague the human race, you know, 50, 75 years ago, you know, neuroscience gave us the, the antidotes to that. And what happened? It was driven underground and criminalized. You know, I firmly believe that, you know, psychedelic drugs have been used throughout history to bring people to a greater state of awareness, enlightenment. And, you know, take, for example, the Native American church, you know, which has comprised many of the, the, the members of the Native American church are Navajos, right? And Navajos of all the tribes are one of the worst tribes as far as rampant alcoholism. But then you go into the Native American church and there's no alcoholism. Mm -hmm. You know, why? Because they're using the, the, the peyote as the psychiatric medicine for which the reason that nature gave it to us. Well, we're missing, we're missing our local shamanism in many ways, right? We're, we're forced to go through the, the federal government for our healing instead of some yeah. sort of, uh, yeah, spiritual shamanistic solution. Yes, that's exactly right. And what we need is a major decentralization. In America, our constitutional system is known as federalism, which basically means that states are supposed to be relatively autonomous. You know, originally in the Constitution of, of the U.S., there were three federal crimes. At the turn of the century, there were 100 federal crimes. At the turn of the 1900s, oh. there were 100 federal crimes total. Now there's over 3,000 and counting, and that doesn't even count all of the, the rules and regulations embedded, you know, within within all of the, the, the regulations that have come down to us, which amount to probably several hundred thousand. So, you know, the, we've completely lost sight of what the purpose of centralized government is supposed to be. And, and it says right in there, you know, it, it, no direct taxation. What that means is that the federal government isn't supposed to tax individuals directly. In fact, the federal government by the Constitution has no authority over the individuals at all. None. And, you know, what's happened is, you know, we've forgotten in this country the potential of what free people can do. And that's what I want to see, you know, that awareness grow, you know, that, hey, you know what, let, let, let's first of all, let's decentralize to the level of the states. Then that was what was originally conceived of as being the great laboratory of democracy, because Okay, if one state wants to legalize drugs, let's see what happens compared to the state that doesn't. Yeah, if you don't then like we'll it. To, yeah. yeah, then we'll be able to see what works, right? If one state wants to try one innovative educational technique, 
let them try that. You know, I mean, we could go on and on with the kind of list, but that was the idea. You know, if one state wants to legalize gay marriage and the other one doesn't, fine. Let one state do that, decide on a state level, and it won't be long before we see what works. And then it won't be long also when <clears throat> citizens of states, you know, say next door to Washington or Colorado say, you know what, look, their crime statistics have gone way down. You know, their, their, their prison population has gone way down. The burden on the taxpayers has been relieved because of that. Um, the police are able to focus on real crimes with real victims. Yeah. Hey, we want that too in our state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See? Huh. Yeah, I don't necessarily get off on a on this political diatribe. No, no. I mean, it's it's all like a lot of the stuff you're talking about. We're familiar with. We talk about on the show the psychedelic part, the you know the war on drugs, the the financial. I mean, we get into financial corruption, all that kind of stuff. I mean, we're going to do a political one coming up here. I mean, the political stuff gets a bit a bit scary for me, but um, yeah. I mean, we. I don't know what to make of what's going on down there. I, all I know is it seems like Canada follows. Uh, you know, fairly close in a lot of, a lot of stuff that happens. So we're hoping yeah. for the best, but I, I have a feeling that things have to get worse before they get better. That could be. And, you know, I, my view is that, you know, there is a role for the federal government to play. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm a, when I look back in my life, the one time that I was proud of my government was, you know, back, you know, in the sixties during the, the Mercury Gemini and Apollo programs, because I was very, much into the whole space program and even you know probably in like seventh eighth grade was imagining myself at one point being an astronaut or something you know yeah, yeah. um but then you know you see the same thing it became politicized you know when richard nixon came into power he began to you know uh begin to scale the space program back he you know allowed the apollo program to finish but it was already you know pretty much in the pipeline but then at that point, he began to drastically scale back and all the whole fleet of Saturn rockets that we built, this huge investment, billions of dollars to build a fleet of, ro fleet of rockets, basically got just put out to pasture. And now they basically sit in museums or out in, in, you know, back lots rusting, you know. But what Nixon did was he was trying to find funds to pay for the Vietnam War. So basically what happened was we basically uh, sacrificed the space program to the Vietnam War. And, you know, this, if we had kept we up, all know how that turned out. Oh, don't we, though? Yeah. And, and, you know, if we kept up the momentum of the space program, you can go back. I have right here in my file some of the prospectus uh, of NASA's prospectus going into the early 70s. And, you know, we're talking about a permanent uh, uh, manned presence on the moon, lunar colonies, that the moon would be utilized as a basically the port city to the solar system. First uh, manned mission to Mars was scheduled for the late 80s. There were plans on the drawing boards for literally for independent colonies in space constructed out of the raw materials and energy resources of space, not the Earth, but from space itself, hmm. which is an incredible infinite reservoir of resources, both material and energy resources, that these were actually could have been built uh, by the early nineties. And, and what has happened though, is the military Boston. industrial complex. Well, here is potentially, we go to the military industrial complex and say, Hey, which would you guys rather do build implements of war for humans to destroy each other or build the implements of cosmic exploration? 
whereby life can become independent of the host planet. We could put ourselves in a in a in a environment where we could protect the Earth from the kind of depredations that have assaulted it throughout its history. Because as as David Levy, co-discoverer of Comet Shoemaker Levy Nine, said years ago in, in the wake of that discovery, he said, you know, of all of the of all of the disasters that could befall the Earth, whether it's volcanism, whether it's giant earthquakes, forest fires, <clears throat> all of this stuff, the ice ages, you know, tsunamis, we can't, there's really nothing much we can do about any of those. But the worst disaster of all would be an, an impact of a bolide from space, right. uh, even a small, and that one subsumes all the others. It incorporates tsunamis, earthquakes, <laughs> yeah, massive yeah. fires, volcanoes. It's by far the worst of all. But here's the irony. He pointed this out in an interview. He said, of the one thing that we have the potential to prevent is the worst one of all. That Our, our near-Earth space, find out what kind of creatures are inhabiting it, which ones are going to be crossing Earth in the next century or two, and we could you know, create the technology to deflect them, destroy them, or even better yet, harvest Mine them. them. Yeah, we talked yeah. to, a, them, yeah. we talked to yeah. a, a NASA fellow that was actually in, he, he was in charge of the asteroid mining division at NASA. Philip Metzger. Or yeah. NASA's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would say. Well, and see, this is what I try to say to some of my environmentalist friends. Look, you guys, once we've moved into space, right now, we're, we're even if, even if the abiotic, concept of oil turns out to be true. We're still looking at a finite resource. Well, for all practical purposes, once we're outside that 5,000 mile deep gravity well into free space, energy and material resources are infinite, virtually infinite. And, you know, and here's more ironies for you. The asteroids that would threaten the Earth because of the fact of their close proximity to Earth, the Earth crossers, are the ones that are the most readily accessible. You know, so that so I like the 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 the, the idea of the, the the NASA engineer you interviewed, who's you know basically find the dangerous Earth crossers and essentially mine them out of existence, use that use up their material. And you know, we talked about you know one of the things that makes plausible the abiotic origin of hydrocarbons is the fact that we know from meteors that they are extremely rich in hydrocarbons. Yeah. Right there, we go. So. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, virtually everything that we're mining on Earth can be extracted from from asteroids. So yeah, that's fascinating. <clears throat> you know, and had we kept the momentum of the space program, the Apollo program, who knows where we'd be now? We'd be, we'd be, you know, there'd be manned missions to the outer solar system, perhaps by now. Certainly, we would have colonies in space. We would be mining asteroids, but that is if the uh, momentum had been kept up, and but what I encountered is every time I brought this up to somebody, they would. This was the, this was the knee jerk response. Well, why should we be going out there trying to do all that in space when we haven't solved the problems here on Earth? Right. Well, you know, I first pr was talking about space development, economic development, colonization. Thirty nine years ago, in nineteen seventy five, when I discovered the work of Gerard O'Neill and his colleagues and and students and so forth, it came up came up with the realization that that if we were going to expand and become a cosmic civilization, the way we do it most economically is not by trying to drag up materials from the surface of the earth, 
but by establishing a beachhead out there and beginning to mine and extract the resources, both energy and materials, of space. Now, they were the ones who pointed out that, you know, if you set up a solar collector uh, in free space, it's going to actually be a viable form of energy, you know. And if you were to take, uh, say, a one square meter solar collector, set it in Death Valley, the and in the middle of the summer on a clear day at noon and measure the amount of solar energy it was able to collect. Mm -hmm. That same solar collector in free space could collect 10 times that amount. Wow. You see, so it's once we're outside in space that solar energy really does become a viable form of energy to run factories and machines and so on. I hope it works uh, out that we make giant like solar sails that fucking ride on like protons. And then, and then stuff, our man. starships end up looking like old school big ships again with these yeah. giant sails on them. You know, when you say like the old ships with sails, you know, when you look at the age of exploration, in the 15 and 1600s, what you see is these colonies, these, these explorers going out, establishing these beachhead colonies that were originally, initially dependent upon the home base. But within a generation or two, they became independent and right. self-sufficient. Yeah. Same concept. When we move into space, yeah. we're initially going to be dependent on Earth. But then within a few decades <clears throat> to a few generations, we will have colonies in space that could actually exist completely independent of the Earth. Graham might actually old... be going soon. He's he's trying to get on the Mars One. No, I was rejected to the Mars One Just program. keep trying, man. I was, no, I'm not going to keep be paying. Keep Just keep paying. Them. Just yeah. keep going. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that because I really would have liked to have the, the first-hand account when you got back. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't coming <laughs> no. back. Oh, he wasn't coming back. No, I, th I think it's a death death uh, wish mission. You go to Mars, try and make it, and basically die there. You call the first ship Kamikaze. <laughs> well, See, my, my message to all those guys, all the people out there listening who have environmental inclinations, as I admit to myself, listen, you should be big proponents of moving our civilization into space. You should be big proponents of reactivating this whole visionary destiny of, of human life and life being in space. And in the longer, bigger picture of the thing, I really do believe that within the evolutionary scheme of things, life really does want to become independent of the planet because as long as it's confined to the surface of the planet, it's going to be vulnerable and subject to these mass extinction events that constantly reset the ecological clock. And I think on some level, guy or whatever you want to call it, says, hey, well, you know what? We need a species that can spearhead the evolution of life into the cosmos. So we're going to need a big brain species. So here comes human beings who have the ability of all of God's species, the ability of foresight, and who can actually go, you know what? What's happened a thousand times before with the earth being bombarded with the, the debris of space is going to happen again. Yeah. But the whole, the whole uh, dialogue here has been hijacked into go into this self, you know, uh, into this neo-Luddite um, self-effacing, um, you know, attitude that, Oh, we humans are a cancer on the earth. We're a blight. We're destroying the planet. We're, initiating this environmental crisis and we have to shut down industrial or western civilization in order to save the planet and all you have to do is go to there's websites all over the place now that are proposing that you know the the deep green people out there that are saying 
yeah, well, we may lose a billion people in the process, but in order to save the earth, that's okay. Wow. I mean, they're saying, oh, yeah, yeah, they're saying it. You can go to some of these websites and, and you will see. I mean, it's fanaticism unleashed that, you know, mankind in that environmentalist mindset, mankind is not part of the natural order. I argue from my perspective of sacred geometry and immersed in, in you know, naturalistic traditions of geology and astronomy and all the rest, that mankind is an integral part of the natural order, that the, the intelligence of the cosmos or the earth, however you want to look at it, knows exactly what it's doing by creating human beings. And we have done exactly what nature has programmed us to do, which is to extract fossil fuels, to to use the energy and the resources of the earth to allow life to get free of the earth. And once life has become free of the earth, it will then be able to relieve the earth. And the earth at that point will be able to revert back to the garden paradise of the solar system. Wow. You see, that, that's going to be the, 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 the primary, most important economic uh, activity of the future earth, you know, 100 years from now or 200 years from now, is that Earth is going to be the, the primary vacation spot of the solar system. We where we and, grow our weed. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> but can you imagine, hey, what kind of weed are we going to be able to grow in space? <laughs> Upside down. Oh, yeah, it'll grow all weird. Zero gravity hydroponics, yeah. Yeah. So there, I mean, the possibilities, my friends, are infinite. So, <laughs> and, and listen, that's a hell of a lot better than us using all of this uh, industrial technology to build the implements of war to kill each other. Exactly. Yeah. When the real threat is a big dumb rock orbiting the sun out there right now, as we speak with our name on it, which could happen anytime, right? That's which the thing. I mean, happen. send in some fucking MDMA nukes into those war torn areas. Just everybody's yeah. just hugging each other and there we go. throw on some tunes. On some tunes, yeah, I'm with you, man. But yeah, all we need another Chelyabinsk, maybe another little, little, maybe double the size of the one that we saw then, and that's going to be a major wake-up call, right? For for a few weeks in the aftermath, people were going, "Hey, you know," but you know, a few months later, everybody's already forgotten it, you know. So I'm predicting we're going to see another one of those. We're going to probably see some more close flybys. Um, in some of, in one of my articles that I've got online, I document some of those close flybys of the last 20 years, and there have been a lot of them. There have been a lot of close calls that people are unaware of or have forgotten about. Yeah. And that, there's a couple of close calls basically every year. Do you talk about some of that stuff in the DVD that you made? So you, ha you have a DVD uh, <laughs> available for purchase, right? Yes. The, the, uh, Yes, cosmic cycles uh, and catastrophe. Yeah, catastrophe. Yes, I get into that, and and I have a lot of imagery on there, um, you know. And if people do buy that, that helps us get a little bit of uh, income in that we recycle right back into doing more research and getting more information out there. Yeah, and I got to say, like I said, we 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 watched the the first bit of. Uh, you know, the first little eight sections of it on YouTube, and and it's just fascinating. It's just loaded with with good stuff. So, I mean, we, I'm going to link to that in the show notes too, and people can go out and buy that, buy that DVD. Good. Yeah. And they can download uh, a, a good chunk of it for free online to get a taste. of. It. Yeah. 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 No, that's so, great. Is there anything else you want to say before we start wrapping it up or uh, no, mention to know, people? I think, I think that's good. I mean, I've, you know, 
we've, we've covered a lot of stuff. I'm getting a little weary on my end. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's really, it's past my nap time. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, we want to thank, you know, I mean, we, geez, we appreciate your time spent. I mean, there's so much stuff to cover and so much stuff we can talk about, but I'm glad we got into a little bit of the sacred geometry, even though uh, it's hard without the visuals. So people have to go to the, uh, to YouTube and see, all the numbers and how they correlate to almost everything. And I'm glad that we talked uh, about that stuff and not only the, you know, the, uh, the, you know, the, the geological yeah. stuff. So. Yeah. yeah. And, and Justin, and we- Justin from the chat room says that when you and grammar in Washington, if you go through, uh, Wenatchee, Wenatchee, then, uh, lunch yeah. is on him. <laughs> well, Chad, actually we probably are going to be in Wenatchee. So who is it? Justin, 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 give him my email address and have him email me because we are almost certainly going to be going through Wenatchee um, and we'll hook up with him. Yeah, sweet. So we're not, yeah, so my email is Randall, R-A-N-D-A-L-L, dot Carlson, C-A-R-L-S-O-N, at gmail.com. All and right. yeah, I, I, I love Wenatchee. Sweet. Great little town, beautiful little town. Uh, uh, you tell them I you would probably swing by there for a free glass of apple juice anyway. <laughs> Sweet. So, um, and hopefully, hopefully you'll end up in uh, in uh, Minnesota in the beginning of October at the Paradigm Symposium. That would be fantastic. Well, yeah, I'm guessing that's what Graham's going there. For. Yeah, I, I yeah. didn't even ask him yet what he was actually doing there, but he said he needed to be there. I forgot if he said the first or the second. So, see, I'm from Minnesota. I I grew up in Minnesota. Ah. just near near minneapolis so okay yeah i've been trying to get back there for 10 years to visit and now i saw well hey he so we initially talked about getting graham to an airport we could fly to minnesota and i came up with the idea well look for our we're going to drive from portland all the way to montana why don't we just keep driving across the, the the great prairie and maybe through the black hills and there's all kinds of stuff to see and just follow the margin of the ice sheet all the way to minnesota <laughs> that's great well, have a good yeah. uh, have a good trip, and and yeah, once again, thanks for thanks for so much of your time and and all the fantastic information. Oh, it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. And um, let's see, Cameron sent me a little message, but I didn't read it in time. I think he was trying to say that that that, that the new version of the C the DVD is going to be high def. I think so. You know, a lot of the graphics should come through real clear. We also have we're putting together uh, a sacred geometry course. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. We're up to, I think, uh, eight, here, 14 classes online. Um, it starts real basic um, because I want people to actually learn the rudiments of geometry uh, and how it actually works because I've oriented it towards people who want to take it who and actually do something with it, whether they're architects or designers or craftspeople, you know, people who might actually want to take it and use it for practical applications. Crop circle makers, you know. Crop circle makers, exactly. So you need to know how it all works. So what we do is we provide each student with a custom-made compass. They get to download. We have a a camera mounted on a boom where we demonstrate uh, very clearly how you do the drawings. Actually, it's it's a hands-on course. And then we have downloadable PDFs and, uh, you know, basically computerized lessons so that they can put all download all of these things and um the first level gets into some really interesting stuff but the really interesting stuff kicks in in level two 
But if you want to get to that, you got to work through level one and learn the rudiments of geometry. So if, if, and, and if you've already think you, you know, you're a geometrician and all this, and you know, somebody uh, wants to jump in a little further along, just contact us and we'll, we'll dialogue on it. I'll see where you're at. And also, you know, we do offer a, a number of scholarships to somebody. If somebody really wants to learn it, they don't have the money. I still want them to be able to learn it. So we do have provide some scholarships to people. Oh, that's a good but, idea. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, anything that, you know, we can do to, you know, help, you know, accumulate some resources to, to, you know, kick this thing to the next level, you know? What about honoraries? Can you get an honorary? Oh, uh, yeah. You know, maybe, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just, I don't want to, Oh, an honorary, uh, I mean, uh, access to the course an honorary i guess degree i guess like the president gets to say you went to yale or how's that work yeah, right <laughs> well you know i'm actually you know spending a lot of my time now filling in gaps in the stuff that i look you know looking what would i need to be a qualified phd well i need a little bit more calculus i need a little bit more statistics so i'm doing a whole series of online classes right now at my, in my leisure time uh, to fill in some of the gaps in my knowledge, and we'll just see where that goes. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I, a lot of what I do is I, I track these these ancient events, like these giant floods. Well, that requires a, a working knowledge of hydrology. So when you go into a valley, like I was describing earlier, yeah. you can calculate what were the actual discharges through this valley, or or what what kind of current velocity or volume was necessary to transport a ten thousand ton rock. Etc. So that requires a pretty, uh, pretty good working knowledge of calculus, which I'm extremely rusty on. So I'm I'm going through and working through an online calculus course right wow. now. Huh. So we'll see where that leads. Uh, and then you know, at some point, I, I I like to engage academics who think that they've figured everything out. <laughs> ask a few uh, controversial questions, see what kind of reaction I get. That's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's the fun part. Yeah. Yeah, I'd so, say, you know, when you walk into some academic setting and you're just some guy off the street, you know, some, you know, carpenter guy or something, they just, you catch him off guard. Yeah. <laughs> Wait well, a second. Thank God for you guys that pushed us through the paradigm that we're in and, and uh, crack open that veil so we can start thinking about, you know, our history and our future in a different light. Yeah, and it sounds like what you guys are doing is is really valuable too. And, and I, up until this, I was not familiar with your website, but now I'm going to become uh, a regular and follow what you guys are doing. Yeah, sweet. Well, we're just uh, starting. You know, it hasn't been that long. We've been doing this for just over a year now, and it's been fascinating. Uh -huh. And you know, just just talking about this stuff and getting it out there. Yeah, and next summer, next summer when I get back to do my research up in in the in the Rockies and in the uh, in your neck of the woods, we should hook up. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, sounds and good. It, yeah, you guys could do some field trips with me, and, and you, I think it'll be pretty exciting and, and uh, eye-opening for you. Yeah, definitely. So what, what I would do is bring you guys out and teach you to read the landscapes in a new way. Yeah, that <laughs> sounds good. That's what, yeah. Yeah, we're so going to head down to Okotoks here soon, too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, now you got my email address, so if you actually do that, shoot me a line and to let me know what your impressions are. All right. And, and then I'll, I'll send some stuff back to you about it that you can uh, learn a little bit more about it and, and the possible process by which you came to be sitting there out in the middle of the prairie. Right on. 
<clears throat> All, All right, right. Guys. All right. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thanks a bunch, Randall. We really appreciate it. And we hope you enjoy what's left of your weekend. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. It looks like there's some left. Well, like I tell, <laughs> told you, I'm, I'm headed for a nap right now. Wow, man. Back to Grimerica. That was our chat with Randall Carlson. Yeah, uh, the episode that almost never existed. And I'm sure you guys are are exhausted and your brain hurts and all sorts of things right now. I don't mind it after. Yeah, yeah. Thank you uh, for everybody that made it all the way through that. And thanks to Randall and Cameron. Yeah, for setting it up. Uh, We'll be linking to all their stuff in the show notes as usual. Like we say, this is when we're really going to push going and checking out the videos and stuff because some of the stuff, if it was kind of hard to wrap your head around while he was was talking, the videos do a really good job of, of laying it out. Yeah. Of course, we'll be back live Tuesday night in the Mixler. Now we know how important Mixler actually is to our operation. (laughs) But uh, we'll be back live with that Tuesday night. I think we're talking with... um, uh, CJ Wurleman. CJ Wurleman. Yeah, that's right. He's... uh, Kind of a political one. Yeah, it's a little political, but I mean, we've been a little hairy-fairy for a while here too, so I think it's time to get back into the trenches and scare the people. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, it'll be a good one. He's kind of a socialist. What time dude. is that? Uh, what time is that on? Uh, you know what? I don't even know if I've confirmed a time. Oh yeah, uh, seven p.m. his time, eight p.m. our time. Eight so p.m. our time. Ten okay. p.m. Eastern. Okay. Used to be a good time. Yeah. Everyone's kind of done their shit for the day, and they can listen okay. to us. Good stuff. Uh, and we'll than, be releasing a lot of episodes coming up, and then we also have one booked for the week after. So yeah, that, the next episode out will be Philip Camella. Yeah. Collapse of Materialism, another uh, rescue. Yeah. And then uh, we'll see. We'll kind of take it from there. We, we got a Bigfoot episode that'll be coming out pretty quick as well uh, with Brian Brown of the Bigfoot show. He's over in Minnesota too. Yeah. Uh, who else? Well, we have uh, Oscar coming out. Too. Oh, yeah. That was a really good one. Yeah. That'll be a good one too. Yeah. So those will all pop out over the next little while. And then we'll have our double whammy uh, with Emmy Bittner and um, Alex Teplish. Alex Teplish, yeah, some graphic novelist, web web comics and stuff like that. That's a, those are fun ones as well. So yeah, I think that's about it. You got anything else you want to spit out before we? Uh... No, just uh, we always like the feedback. Uh, Graham at GrahamAmerica dot com. The spamgram, as Darren says, G R A H A M at grimerica.com and then oh, review that us new too jingle we gotta try out next week too. yeah yeah right yeah review us too that's everyone's mission for the week review the Grimerica show yeah that always helps otherwise we will find you alright that's about it man alright guys you'll find links to the show notes and everything else uh, links in the show notes to everything we talked about the music we used and uh, and the money bomb so yeah head on over to the money bomb 
and review the show and spam the shit out of Graham. Thank you.